0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Trinity Rep. Celebrating 60 years with August Wilson's Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning drama returning to Trinity Rep's stage for the first time in 30 years. March 21st through April 28th. Tickets at trinityrep.com. And Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to being a renewable energy partner for New England and working to fight climate change. Learn more at sunbugsolar.com.
1: Ahead on Boston Public Radio, we'll start with your thoughts on racism and leadership reaction to it in a number of Massachusetts schools where institutional protection seems to be concern number one.
2: At noon, we'll be airing live audio from the swearing-in of Boston's 56th mayor, Michelle Wu. Then we'll open the lines to hear your hopes for the Wu era. Then Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Pharaoh Stockman will tell us what happens to people when work disappears. And CNN's John King here on the recently indicted Trump acolyte Steve Bannon. Will he ever go to jail? All that coming up on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. GBH. Hello, Jim. Good to be back.
1: I thought you did one of those job change things we talked about all the time on the show. I figured after years doing radio you were planting no, no. flowers. No, no. Or, well, good. Welcome I back. I was in a
2: new granddaughter mode. It was very
1: nice. And by the way, Jared was great. We both want to thank Jared for doing this Yes, terrific we certainly job, do. As he always does. So we're starting the show with yet another revelation of racism in public school districts in Massachusetts. You just heard about it on the news. In Quincy, recordings of a selfie video filled with anti-black rhetoric and one of a Derogatory rap song aimed at a rival football team has spurred demands for an assessment of school culture, but it's just the latest in a series of appalling cases across districts in our state. You'll know this in Danvers, a toxic, racist locker room culture has come to light with their hockey team. In Braintree, I think it was 300 students walked out this week to protest their school administration's response to racism against students. And there are other examples, too. So we'd like to hear from you about this, 877-301-8970. What's going on in these schools now? And why does it feel like we're not addressing things head on and instead are left to deal with story after story, district after district of students speaking out against these horrific incidents At, at the same time? That school administrators, at least to me, Marjorie, seem to be using overbroad definitions of confidentiality, one of your favorite subjects with public figures, and engage in institutional protection over student. Protection, at least to me. The number is 877 301 8970 You just heard Aaron Schachter say on the news that the leaders in Quincy saying they were going to act quickly. Well, right. if you read the Globe accounts, students have been complaining for years about racism in the school. It's just because it, ra- it was raised to such a high profile that they had to deal with it. And this Stanford School Committee, I'm sorry, last night they decided to take no action against the superintendent. I have no idea if action is appropriate. But you know what put me over the edge? The superintendent, whose job was apparently at risk, what did she do right after the meeting was over? Walked out the side door. Oh, that's right. Walked out the side door. Does she, after hiding from the people of that community for ages, until the Globe fought to get these documents and information released. Don't you think the damn superintendent has an obligation to face the media and answer questions that the people in her community want to know rather than putting out some, you know, carefully scripted by lawyer document that I'm sure yeah. will come out today? This is driving me, this is it's like an epidemic. 877 301
2: Well, you hear anecdotally for years that schools did a much better job dealing with gay issues when, you know, gay marriage on the, mm-hmm. the bill, and they wanted to have uh, groups organized so because there were terrible suicide problems among gay kids and stuff like that. And they did addressing race issues. I know I used to, certainly used to hear that in Brookline when my kids mm-hmm. were still in the high school there. Um, and, and so, what a lot of these students, a lot of kids of color, have been saying, yes, this has been going on for years, but there seems to be an intensification, at least according to this Mulvey guy in Quincy, the superintendent of schools there, Kevin Mulvey, that the things have gotten more severe. Mm-hmm. So, I wonder whether part of this is just a reflection of what the kids are hearing at home. Uh, their parents I mean, were in the era of Trump, you're talking The era yeah. of Trump. I mean, mm. you hear um, all these stories in my favorite uh, podcast, The Daily. They had a, uh, a story this morning about, you know, people screaming at school board members oh, and sure. screaming at administrators and threatening people over uh, race issues. They're talking about critical race theory or attitudes about teaching about racial issues in the school. So whether this is, you know, they hear it at home from their parents and things are accelerated in school, or whether this is just something. Uh, that people are talking more about now. But it does seem to me that it's getting worse. Like you say, you get, you know, uh, what, 300 kids walking out in Braintree. Braintree, you got these uh, hundreds of kids walking out in
1: Quincy. We didn't even mention the Georgetown football uh, game. That was like a a, a month ago when apparently not just students, players, staff, parents – Uh, allegedly, you know, yelling racial epithets at the other team. And, you know, your issue that you've talked about through the years, and I I am so with you, you've written about for years of the Herald and the Globe, talked about here, this BS about how confidentiality means we can't say anything. I was a lawyer, not much of one. I know how to redact a document so you can identify the participants and still not black out like 90 percent. They hide behind this thing. Because again, as I say, in not, in most but not all of these circumstances, the primary goal is not to protect the student or the families. The primary goal is to protect the institution and uh, its leaders. And it really is, it's really reaching every day there is a, Every day there's a new story or at least an advanced story. 877-301-8970. I want to know what your reaction is to this and yeah, what do you think you, we should it, do it, about it, it, too.
2: If you are uh, someone that's been an educator, if you've seen this happening in schools, if you're a parent, uh, what do you hear from your own kids? If you're a kid that's skipping school today or maybe you're home with a very bad cold and <laughs> you like to call
1: in You know what ch- should happen? Charlie Baker should give a speech. He should really should give a speech about this. This is – I mean – Individual community by individual community is not enough. I think he probably cares about this a lot. Uh, He cares about kids, I think, a pretty significant amount. But when it's happening across so many communities, leaders have got to stand up and and – be heard. 877-301-8970. What's your reaction? Maybe we're exaggerating. Maybe we're overreacting to this. Maybe it's a limited number of places. It seems to me it's far too many places. And the response is far too muffled. And there are far too many superintendents walking outside doors rather than confronting the issue head on. I'm going to repeat that again. Were it not for the globe's insistence relentlessly to get the information, we would not know anything about. This would have been totally hidden from the families in Danvers. Glenda in Framingham, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you much for calling, hi.
3: Thank you and and, um, you both have hit the nail on the head. Um, I retired as a public school teacher in June and Mm. I just wanna say that um, a couple of things. First of all, administrative salaries in this state have really ballooned to the point there is a huge chasm between the rank and file teachers and administrators. So by and large, administrators are trying to protect their their high salaries, and school committee members um, are trying to get elected and protect their seats. And both of those combined, such that they are petrified of parents. Hmm. They hide things. They are afraid to tell parents when they are completely wrong. And it's all because they, they're they're just afraid to lose their positions of power.
2: So um, you both have have.
3: Um, hit the nail on the head, and um, I'll take my...
2: Glenda, hold, to on, hold, hand on, hand hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Before yep. you go, uh, we just talked about a, a, a gubernatorial race down in Virginia that a lot of people think was lost because one of the ter- parents uh, of one of the Would be governors, or he had been governor before. He wanted to be reelected. Terry McAuliffe said, "Parents, I'm paraphrasing now, you know, shouldn't be involved in the curriculum of the school. They shouldn't be involved in the schools." And the the conventional wisdom is that's one of the big reasons why he lost for saying that. that, The parents said, "You know, drop dead Terry McAuliffe for voting for the other guy." I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think that that parents are more empowered than they should be, or that it's just the administrators being afraid? Or what do you think as a teacher?
3: Well, uh, in my experience, parents want to be involved to a point. For example, um, when we were, uh, you know, last year when there was the controversy of remote learning versus trying to get kids into school. Yeah. In my community, the parents that were driving that were sports parents. Hockey parents uh, <laughs> staged a rally because they wanted their kids to play hockey. They weren't concerned about the curriculum. They weren't concerned about, you know, mislearning time. They were concerned about sports. And so, you know, I, I respect and, and I think we all respect and encourage parents who are sincerely concerned about what their you know, the quality of the education that their kids are ha- having. But there is a, a, a vocal majority of parents who are, are motivated by their kids' participation in sports yeah. and extracurriculars. Yeah. And um, they, they really are behind a lot of the toxicity in, in um, this state and this country.
1: Glenda, thank you for your call. 877-301-8970. Let's go to Danvers, uh, seen in one of these serious problems. Jameson's on the phone. Welcome to the show. Thank you for calling. Hi.
4: Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, yeah, I just want to comment. Um, I actually did graduate from Danvers. Hi. Uh, oh. I can't talk. I can't speak on the situation. I don't know um, what happened or what's going on there. Um i think the same superintendent is is still there I'm not positive about that i I it could be wrong. Lisa Dana um, so is her was, name okay I'm not sure. I was in class two thousand two, so it was a little while back, but it looked on the, I saw the television last night. It looked like it could've been the same woman um and I can just say the only thing I can say on her is that we i didn't I, we never saw her like she just didn't exist in terms of the students like students had absolutely no idea to her we didn't really know who she was, you know the principal sort of took care of, um, you know, uh, interacted with the students more, um, which I guess, you know, may be normal. But, um, what I wanted to comment on was actually something else. So you have the Denver situation. I had a a situation personally, um, this past year I was taking an online course. Um, and and I had a situation where a student in the course was, was, you know, made a comment to me directly, um, like through, through a text this is going on to see a whole online thing kind of new and different. Um, so, so they during the class they texted me and said something like um, it was just a really inappropriate comment. So when I when I elevated it to the institution, uh, and it is a well known local institution here in the Boston area. I'm not I won't mention it mention the name. But, um, but uh, what happened was they immediately came to me almost systematic, like like it was just something they're so used to doing, and that this was almost protocol when something happens like this. You know, um, they came to me after, after evaluating things and, and interviewing, you know, doing it, doing a, and they changed it from, from anyway, it changed from me having a complaint about having a, you know, being being having an un, inappropriate comment made towards me to uh, an equivocation. You know, they, 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 they turned it into, okay, well you did this. Which was something, and I, I don't even I don't even know. Don't Jameson, know. hold on for know. a
2: second. When you're talking sure. about inappropriate, do you mean homophobic or racist or anti? It was racist. It racist.
4: was racist. It was about it was it was a, it was a woman. It was a, it was a female, and it was a comment about white men. It was completely inappropriate. It was completely out of context. It had no place. She just she just inserted race and um, you know gender into um, you know comments about. So was your uh, point or.
1: that the institution tried to figure out how they could blame you for part of the problem?
4: Absolutely. I went there to get help from them and they changed it into they said, Okay, well we'll we'll look into this, Jameson, you know? And what they did was they came back to me and said, Hey well listen, we we have looked into it and we realized you did this. And I don't I can't remember what they said I did. It was an obvious thing to just try to make it equal and it was a So do you think hold on
2: Jameson, so do you think this is because it was somebody saying something about a white man that that was it as opposed to okay, well Okay, we got it, we got it, we got it. Jameson, thanks for the call. It's it's a little bit different, I think, uh, something Toward a white person than it is. Well, it depends or, what was said. Also, a black also. person depends what was said, but usually it's a little bit. You know, can I get on this situation. confidentiality
1: bandwagon for a second? You know, one of the issues that the uh, Quincy leaders are unwilling to speak to because of confidentiality is apparently there's black kid at school who punched out or at least punched the white uh, maker of one of these racist videos, right? And there are rumors in the community. That uh, the punishment given to the black kid who is responding to the racist video is worse than the maker of the video. And the leader of this one of the leaders of the school system said he refutes that, etc. What is there about confidentiality that stops you from saying, Here's Nothing. the punishment Nothing. the African American kid got, Nothing. and here's the punishment the filmmaker got? It's, and by the way, I can't tell you their names because yeah. they're minors, they're students. What it is, total it's just a sm- crap. Yeah. Total crap. No. Dan in New Hampshire, welcome to the show. Hi. 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 Hello. Can, can, yeah. can you hear me? You're yes. on. Yeah, take it away.
5: Okay. Yeah. I'm a school counselor at a high school in New Hampshire. Oh. And I, I just see it all as going back to what is modeled at home. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, on a daily basis, I'm dealing with students who behave badly towards others. And when the parents are immediately in my office or on the phone defending their child, um, their child's inappropriate behavior or statements, um, what, what are we going to do? Mm.
2: Dan, do you see it as you know? getting worse? I do. Yeah, I
6: and do you think... It's much worse.
5: Why? And I, I put a lot of that blame at the modeling that happens at the national level. I mean, yeah. we went through four years of being told that it's okay to uh, target and, and uh, racially profile others and make fun of groups because of their ethnicity, Inappropriate, so inappropriate.
1: I agree with your analysis 100%. Dan, thank you for uh, your call. We appreciate You know, it.
2: several people, including Eleanor, have reminded us that, and we were talking about Braintree when they had the, the walkout in Braintree mm-hmm. um, over these um, racist goings on, that a Braintree school teacher who was at the January 6th re- insurrection oh, and forgot. was let go uh, was just elected to the Braintree School Committee. Second so, top vote getter, wasn't he, if I, mean, I remember I, I think so. Correctly? Oh, yes. Okay, so we're talking about this rash of racist incidents coming to light in schools all over the place. We're going to keep talking to you about it. What's going on? Is it? Do you see it as worse? And why do you think it's worse? You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie. Egan. in about 35 minutes, we're going to bring you live Michelle Wu's swearing in and apparently her brief statement after from the city council chambers. But in the interim, we're talking about the series of racist incidents in schools across the state and what's being done about them or not being done about them. You know, what we have to add to the list. We talked to the revs about this yesterday. Jared and I, I had her on TV too, Mary Godwin whose little girl, and a little girl, second, third grade something, August, biracial kid, bullied at school. And what she asked for from the school leaders there was to be either to sit near her friends who were supportive or sit near the teacher in Wellesley. And this is denied. Well, was she a Metco kid? No, no, no.
2: You know, because that's another interesting angle in this. Um, Explain what METCO is. Well, METCO people. is a program where uh, kids in Boston can sign up to go to suburban kids, uh, schools, schools rather, yeah. and th- they will go to Wellesley or they'll go to Brookline or they'll go, you know, Andover or wherever. And you've hear- heard this anecdotally over the years. Again, you know, my youngest was out of high school nine years ago. But you hear this, that there's not a lot of talk in a lot of these overwhelmingly white communities. About the METCO program and what uh, parents can do. I mean, there's these kind of METCO groups, and you get together and you can be hosts of METCO kids and stuff, but there's not really a lot of talking about it when, for many of these white kids, the only kids they know that are black kids are the METCO kids from these towns. And I also. Wasn't the
1: movie Code Switching, which you talked about a couple of weeks ago, wasn't that about the METCO program? I'm pretty sure. Maybe I did it on TV. I believe believe it was. Yeah, I
2: was going to say, did I forget that completely? No, you didn't on TV. But anyway, uh, and this Quincy thing, I thought it was also interesting that one of the um, uh, women that's involved in this, Maya Correa, a woman of color, she she graduated from Quincy High School a few years back, and she talked about how they would have these forums about racism, but mostly the people, the only people that showed up were other kids, other black kids or kids of color. So she was basically saying that they might have been missing the white kids that might have had something Mm -hmm. to... uh, that they might want to hear.
1: By the way, that movie I just looked at, it is called Code Switching, and it's about the personal experiences of a bunch of African-American kids, now adults, who participate in this, uh, this Metco program. It's worth a look, and it's online, and I think it's connected to uh, GBH as well. Let's go to Newton where Linda's on the phone. Welcome, Linda. Hi.
7: Yeah, hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Sure. The um, point I wanted to make was similar to what the, la- what the last caller actually said is I think some of this comes from the top. And you know, I don't want to pile on the previous administration, although there's a lot to blame there. The um, this you know, we blame coaches for setting, or, or if they don't set the right tone for their players, mm-hmm. we we tag parents for not setting the right uh, tone for their players or for their children. And the um, you know, we got to elect leaders who model civility, decency, and politeness at the top. And unfortunately, the previous inhabitant of the office did do a lot to make it, you know, calling it cancel culture, call it making political correctness a a bad word when, you know, I, I say a lot of the things that are tagged as being politically correct with a disdainful voice is really just being decent and being polite. And once you make it, you know, that you can't, even discuss things without civility, then the divide grows. And at least when we were being polite and civil to each other, we could be in the same room and talk, you know, with people who are different than us. But we've lost that because we've lost a role model in the top and in our elected leaders.
1: By the way, I think it's, I agree with you. And I think it's even worse. I mean, when, you know, it's not just a lack of civility and rudeness, it's Jews will not replace us and they're good people on both sides, is the response. I mean, it was an embrace of racism pretty yeah. regularly, and it's understandable that it would trickle down to others, which it sadly it makes has. It okay. Yeah, it makes it okay. Yeah. Linda, thanks. We At appreciate all your call. Well, Thank there's you. been
2: so much written about how school board members across the country need security forces now to go to the school board meetings because people are threatening to kill them. And the same thing is happening to public health people, people that get into the job public health. You don't think you're going to be putting your life on the line to tell you what's how about good and what's Fauci.
1: What... I know. How about secretaries of state? How about did we? Were you here? When we, was it? I can't remember who was Chuck out on Thursday when you weren't here, or John King when you were here. Would you run oh, – all these people a Jackie Speier or Spe- – with Speier, I think, in California, long-term congresswoman, not running for re-election. I don't know why. We'll ask John King at 120. Would you run for re-election in this atmosphere when your life is at risk, as dedicated as you may be to a democracy in your community or your country? Well,
2: the, the, the Republicans who voted for the infrastructure bill. Are oh, now? yeah. Oh, infrastructure. Infrastructure. Infra- Tra- Upton. We played traitors. you were here for this. We Asian- played
1: the recording, the voicemail recording in Congressman Upton from Michigan's office with death threats because he voted for an infrastructure bill. Hey, infrastructure, I, I, roads I, I and thought, bridges. I
2: thought we all agreed that we don't like potholes. I thought we all agreed on that. You know that- though,
1: you know, I hate to be sappy. I'm going to say this later. Oh, this is not the topic. I'm watching, I think it was during our show. Yeah, during our show yesterday. Uh, I'm watching the ceremony at the White House on CNN, just sort of with one eye while we're uh, talking to the listeners. And it was so I shouldn't have to say this, but it's so unusual when you saw Republicans like Senator Portman stand up and speak at Biden's infrastructure signing. Yeah. You say I mean I'm almost embarrassed to say it was so nice to see, <laughs> you know, this bipartisan and you who also stood up, I hope this means there's a deal. Cinema was allowed to speak. Senator Cinema, so I assume I hope there was some sort of trade there. I'll give you a platform if
2: Very nice. Whatever.
1: In any case, <laughs> I'm sorry nice. I got off track. Bernadette in the car. Hi.
8: Hi. Um, I just wanted to add to what has been said, which much of which I agree with, although I don't agree with being polite and civil as being enough, but that's okay. That's maybe for another day. Punishing kids is what we all want to do to make this stop, but we're not doing sort of a truth and reconciliation thing. Mm. And so I don't think kids are learning how to acknowledge that they did something wrong and hurtful that it hurt an entire community as well as themselves and and how to how to make it better how to make amends and i think these high school kids i mean i believe in punishment too the coach ought to lose his job and that superintendent should have been shuffled out the side door to retirement but
1: <laughs> permanently out the side <laughs> door yeah go ahead
8: like, you have to circle up in your community and you have to face these things. And it's appalling that no one seems to have the whatevers to do that right now.
2: I so, love
1: this call, Bernadette. I yeah, think you're so it's right. it's a great call, Thank Bernadette. You. And somebody did
2: mention truth and reconciliation in one of these stories. Oh, I yeah, I it. can't find it, and I apologize. But someone did wrench, in, and that's kind of when you sit down. and Everybody gets in a group, and um, remember, the South Africans did this after yeah. terrible with bis- uh, uh, the Bishop T- uh, Tutu there, Desmond Tutu.
1: Well, Northern Ireland made and Northern an Ireland, yeah, yeah, and
2: and a lot of people think that we needed that kind of thing in the United States, where people talk about what they did wrong, and when you hear. I think those things are very helpful myself. Anyway, Alice from Canton, thank you for calling.
1: Steve Bannon, by the way, was going to, if there was a truth and reconciliation meeting, was going to lead people there to beat up all the participants. <laughs> That's the only problem. <laughs> Alice, you're in Canton. You're on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling. Hi. Sorry. Yeah,
9: yes. Well, having grown up in a segregated uh, Birmingham, Alabama, oh. I can tell you that uh the what they've done in Canton has been a wonderful thing. What's that? Uh, uh, they have a superintendent of education who walks up and down the halls of of all the schools, and and you know her, you know who she is. They've also started selling houses side by side to people of color as well as white people. Because what happened in Birmingham and many other places is they just resegregated. They just, uh, you know, and in fact, I had to sell my house to a a family of color in order to integrate Huntsville, Alabama. So it, it, as long as we continue to put people in ghettos, and I don't care how expensive the houses are, they're still ghettos. If you separate people of different races artificially, uh, it, we're going to have segregation. And... Uh, the people of of canton have discovered that guess what it doesn't pay to be hateful yeah <laughs> and so i'm just very proud of this little town that that was much more closed when i first moved in 50 years ago uh but now they they really are uh improving their attitude and and i think it's because of our police chief our fire chief as well as the people of of the town so that
1: Alice, thanks That's for – That's all I have to say. Well, you said it beautifully. Thank you for sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. 301 Yeah, I'm sort of fixated on Bernadette's thing about truth and reconciliation or whatever you want to call yeah. it. I mean, what, what's implicit in what she's talking about is transparency that doesn't exist in virtually – any of these uh, situations. And by the way, you know what the other thing is? I- I- about to, I'm sorry to obsess on this confidentiality, but since that's what is hidden behind by the leaders to be able to to not disclose what's going on and to not do anything – Meaningful. I assume people know that if you go to the players, I assume this is legal. If you go to the people whose confidentiality you purport to be protecting and say, is it okay if I disclose the following information? Uh, And they say yes. And I'm assuming in a decent number of circumstances, if their kids aren't put at risk, they'd say yes. Then you can do that kind of thing. And I assume there are a lot of publicly spirited parents Public-spirited parents who'd be willing to do that if it was well, for the good of the community. I
2: mean, we have we, – we're a democratic state and we have one of the least transparent legislatures this, yes, or governors. Sir. I mean, he's a Republican, but uh, this is basically a democratic state. We're one of the worst in the whole nation. No, it's
1: not one of the worst. According to Todd Wallach, the worst. left the globe for BUR, okay. we are the worst in the country in terms of uh, disclosure of all three branches of uh, and so it it's might be on. nice
2: if the Democrats stood up and did something about that. It's unbelievable what they get away with around here. And by the way, Carol just says, speaking of civility and truth and reconciliation, Uh-oh. she says she's noticed an awful lot of F Biden signs hanging out of windows or on trucks or on lawns all around her neighborhood. So there you go.
1: Well, that Brandon stuff is so low rent. I mean, it's just so low rent. Corey and JP, welcome.
2: Hi, guys.
7: Hi. Hi. Um, I wanted to push back a little bit on blaming our leaders. Sure. And, of course, there's some blame. But on a more rich, small scale, you know, it's difficult talking about politics. And I feel like for those who are able, you know, you have to model that out, especially for your kiddos. But even with my own friend groups, I don't know anyone who gets together to try to, you know, in a thoughtful way in the information age, talk about politics. There's so much to do. I mean, I remember... You know, our country used to have salons in Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, The Bully Pulpit. Howard Taft, or William Taft, when he was young, him and his wife used to have salons in their 20s. Um, you know, this is an art form at the end of the day. To but, be Corey, to Corey if I each if, other.
1: if I may, when you say talk about politics, unless I'm missing something, it's it's less about politics, or maybe I'm being naive, and more about how human beings relate to other human beings, isn't it? Which theoretically should be transcend politics, shouldn't it? Or am I missing something?
7: Well, I think the um, I think there's you need a certain amount of a grasp on the policy to to really make it move it from just a conversation to something that you can act on. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a you know there's a praxis involved in all this knowledge that we supposedly gained by listening to, you know, Jim and Marjorie, but also, let's let's say, Rachel Maddow, and for those who are really nerdy, you know, Tucker Carlson. You know, you, you try to get a lot of different information and then take that and, um, with your people, discuss and then act on that at some point. But, You're
1: Corey, Corey the key word you say there is you get your information. Part of the problem in lots of places, Danvers being at the top of the list, Nobody got any information, and transparency has got to be – you may be right about how difficult the process becomes, but step one, which is obligatory as far as I'm concerned, is transparency as long as it doesn't hurt any of the individuals involved. And I think what we have in most of these cases is the exact opposite of transparency, so people don't even have an opportunity to have those difficult discussions because they don't know what the hell is going on. But having said that, I, so, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead.
7: So, so then you, you, you say, uh, are, am I supporting my local journalists? Um, you know, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in New Bedford and New Bedford light. Great. Um, oh, yes. Paper down there. How are they doing? had one
1: the leaders on a yeah, couple of months ago. Yeah, how are
2: doing, Corey?
7: Uh, <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they don't have a huge staff, but what they cover, they dig very deep Good. in. So, great. so, you know, yeah. Um, But it's, you know, it's really hard with Gannett going out there and buying out, you know, Standard Times and the Herald. So the New Bedford Lights having to find a new economic model. Um, But it's, you know, a lot of our local papers, almost all of them have been gutted.
1: By the way, Cambridge, which is a pretty big community where a lot of stuff's going on, is losing its key local paper other than an online one, too. So. You make good points. Corey, thank you very much for the call. We we appreciate it.
2: Jerry says, I feel like we're living in a Lord of the Flies world. No, there is
1: a piece of that. Remember that, that one? Oh, that, you course. know, all the
2: little kids, that you don't, you don't have anybody to thaw, you don't have anybody setting the rules. We all turn to our animal instincts.
1: But the caller said, you know, the kids are, and no one's suggesting they shouldn't be published, punished for bad behavior, assuming they're old enough and aware enough. And most of these circumstances are. The adults are the ones who are from the ultimate top on down are the uh, problem. We'll continue these kinds of discussions about this because unfortunately they keep happening every day with you guys as time goes ahead.
2: Okay, coming up, going to talk to our sports authority, Trinity Kuznarek. She is next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie Egan. Joining us online now, and by the way, we will carry uh, Michelle Wu's swearing in and inaugural speech live in about 20-some minutes. But first, joining us online is Treni Trinny Kuznarek. Trenny's an anchor and reporter with NBC Sports Boston and a BPR contributor. Hello there, Trenny Kuznarek.
2: Hi, guys. How are you? We're excellent. Hey, Trinny Kuznarek. And Trinny Kuznarek is also a marathon runner. So who better to talk to about this incredible story about a 34-year-old big time, uh, uh, or 38-year-old, excuse me, marathon runner big time who collapsed, went into cardiac arrest in, in, in I think a mile eight of the Boston Marathon or something?
10: Yeah, her name is uh, Megan Roth. And she's not just like any marathon runner. Like this is someone who has... Um, got a time fast enough to qualify for the Olympic trials. Now that doesn't mean that she's an Olympian. Like she was 34. Level, but she was 34.
2: Excuse me. Yeah, she was she, 34.
10: She's 34, but she is, you know, she's an unbelievable. She's from Minnesota. She was, you know, she's, she runs at just a smidge over six minutes per mile. So this is not like your average just like, I'm going to go out and run a marathon once and see how it goes, kind of a runner. This is someone who, um, you know, personal best time and qualified her for, like I said, for the U.S. Olympic trials back in 2020. Um, she's done this for a long time. She's got a pretty popular marathon blog, actually, that people um, that people follow. And all of a sudden, around mile eight, she just started not feeling great. She stumbled and collapsed, um, you know, right, right there. Um, and she got lucky because, Um, near her were a retired ICU nurse, a doctor from California, an emergency room person, someone who was like watching from like a balcony on the course came down, they pounded her chest, they administered CPR and they got her to the hospital where she survived. And she probably two things I think contributed to the fact that she was able to survive this. Um, one that there were so many people who were trained, to um, help her in that moment of need. But also the fact that they said, you know, because she was so fit. Um, what I find interesting, they did not release why or exactly. how this I've, happened. You know what? I found
2: this almost ho- terrible. An entire story written about this
10: and we don't know what why. So she's choosing to keep it to herself. Um, you know, I don't know if maybe, you know, listen, none of us, none of us know, right. It's her choice to keep it. Um, but I did leave the story feeling like, okay, well, how does a extremely fit 34 year old collapse from cardiac arrest? Um, you know, who knows what it can be? I'm not a doctor. I can't even begin to speculate at what would cause this. Um, sometimes you just have a, you know, a genetic disposition, For something like we just the other day at a friend's giving, I was talking to a a friend of ours who one day realized he was having a hard time, breathing while golfing and then it turns out he had like a degenerative heart condition. He had heart surgery. Now he's fine. Like it could be something like that, right. Where this woman just did not know or didn't see the signs of something that was leading to, you know, maybe leading to poor performance or whatever. And who knows what was happening before, but Marjorie, I did find it interesting that she did not want to reveal Well, you know um, what it was. You know what? I, I don't mean to criticize
2: um, this reporter who did a great job, Hannah Kruger, but I almost thought it irresponsible to run this story Without some – if she doesn't want to talk about it, she doesn't have to talk about it. But it's kind of like maybe there shouldn't be a story then or um, or sh- there should be some sidebar with some medical people talking about – I mean, it was kind of like you read the whole story. And what's the biggest hole in this, like a 18-wheeler yeah, hole? Yeah, but don't you
1: – by the way, I agree with you at first. It sounds like both of you, but particularly you, Marjorie. But on the flip side, the story was more about this –
11: the community Ad hoc
1: team of right. people coming together. Yeah. who didn't know each other to save her life. You know, and I'm not, I, I had to, felt the same thing you both did, but I thought that part of the story was actually quite great. About the old, but they're too.
2: not the star of the story. She's the star. Well, the that's story. A good,
1: yes, you're right. You're probably right. Yeah, okay.
10: But I do think that I'm just you being know, a hard
2: nosed reporter no, you're here. Probably right. You're probably
1: <laughs> no, right. No, okay. I mean
10: Marjorie, I I literally I sent this to some friends. I said, oh my god, did you read this? I said, but has anybody heard? Like, she's spoken publicly. Like, why are they not talking about what caused this? Because automatically, right, your mind goes to places that probably aren't great, right? You know, wondering what possibly could have happened or what, what could have led to this. Um, yeah, I don't know, Marjorie, if it would have been more journalistically responsible to talk to a doctor, even if she didn't say and say, hey, how often does this happen in healthy people? What could have caused this? But I think that the story was supposed to be centered on the fact that that here was this person who had this traumatic experience and in the spirit of the marathon and the spirit of the community of the marathon, right. That was laid out like other people. And keep in mind, if she's running a six minute pace around that time, the runners who are with her at the front of the pack they're not just running this to like how I ran it this year. Like I'm just running it to run it. I'm stopping and like, you know, hugging friends and taking pictures. Like these are, these are runners who qualified. They're runners who are fast. They're runners who most likely went into this with a goal and put their own personal goals aside to help someone who was in need. And I think that was sort of the spirit of the story, but I fully understand where you're coming from because I left, I left, you know, left the page of the story thinking, Okay, but there's a huge piece to the puzzle missing here.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it was reminiscent, obviously, of what happened after the bombing, where you had not a single person who made it to that tent uh, where all the medical personnel were um uh pass away i mean the people Uh, one died Uh,
1: one died who didn't die which was an incredible thing so can we go to an incomplete story to one of my favorite stories of recent times it's a washington post story by woman candace maybe athlete family and friends could log off and enjoy the show quietly it should have been and shut up it starts with i assume most people even if you aren't a football fan know that odell beckham jr is this great receiver used to play for cleveland and Or not play very much for Cleveland. He's generally seen as an elite person, even though he hasn't been that elite in recent years. And right before uh, he got his wish and was released and got to go to one of the Los Angeles teams, his father puts out a video. His father puts out a video with little circled things and whatever showing every opportunity where the quarterback of that team, Baker Mayfield, failed to throw the ball to his son, even though his ball was – his son was open and threw it to somebody else, which is sort of the entry point to talk about parents, siblings – Mothers, fathers, etc., getting far too involved in the uh, the athletic lives not of little kids, which we've discussed a million times on the show, but pro athletes. What are some of your favorite examples from this, uh, Trina Kuznerek?
10: Oh my God, I just love it because I feel like no one ever has the guts to call these people out. Mm-hmm. But like, I remember, I, I remember like early in my career, my mom or my I think it was my mom. My mom spicier than my dad. So it would have definitely been my mom who like wanted to respond to someone in the comment section. And I was like, no, like the worst <laughs> thing you could possibly do is like clap back at some anonymous, you know, like GB Pack fan 322 and like who says I'm terrible and be like, That's my daughter. She's good, she works hard. Do you know what she came from? You know, I was like no one cares. No, just if you see something nasty about me online ignore it and move on because it just it makes it doesn't make it make one it makes the person who's chiming in look terrible but it also makes the athlete exactly. or whoever's in the public I look just as bad my favorite example from this because it's it's like listen it's gotta be it, it has to be incredibly difficult to love someone whose job whether it's a politician an athlete an actor a musician where people are attacking them right anyone in a public facing position but like Emily Mayfield, who is the is the wife of Baker Mayfield, like puts out an Instagram message like stop blaming my husband for this loss. And you guys are there when they win, but not when he plays that. I was like, yeah, that's called being a fan. Emily." (laughs) When your husband throws like two interceptions in a game and looks like garbage, guess what fans do? They get mad and they boo him at the stadium. Like, I understand that. That fan behavior can go way overboard, right like the idea now that guys get and female and women get death threats, you know, and like their families get docs like that is obviously a category in and of itself. But I'm sorry if I go to a game and I start booing Jason Tatum because he's once again, like one for 13 from the field. Like, sorry, dude, you're paid to make baskets. If you're not making them, we're going to boo you. That's how this works. And like OBJ's dad, like I just don't understand. Like, it, 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 like, especially like a parent, a parent is so awful too, because it's like, don't you think your kid can stand up for himself? Oh, oh, like he, hold on. Like he's a hold 29-year-old grown man.
2: Hold on. Speaking for somebody who I think can stand up for himself yeah, pretty I well, LeBron James, one of the biggest, brawniest men in the history of the world. Apparently, he became, according to the story, so incensed by his mother getting up from her seat and yes. swooping <laughs> into a baseline kerfuffle that he told her to sit her Sleep <clears throat> down. down. Yep.
10: Yeah, I love well, that. Well, can I add That's my two things? Do. That's what I would do. Like, L- let keep me add, your mouth shut.
1: Let me add two to this. They mention, this is somebody who didn't even do it openly. Some spouses who tweet under assumed names, <laughs> even though they don't lay this out in the piece. Roger Goodell's wife, the man who makes whatever, 60, 70 million dollars a year yeah. run the NFL. His wife tweets under an anonymous account. This is during the National Anthem stuff, obviously started by Colin Kaepernick. Reads like somebody's tweet, reads like a press release from the Players Union. You can do better. This is trashing a reporter. Uh, uh, So-and-so who's doing this, the head of the Players Union, sounds like Donald Trump with inaccurate firebombs. That turned out, thanks to the Wall Street (laughs) Journal, to be the wife of the commissioner. But here's my favorite that is not mentioned in this piece. Al Horford is a player for the Boston Celtics, yes. for those who don't know. His sister is very active on Twitter. Draymond Green, who is a pretty great player, criticizes Kelly Olenek, who's a former player with the Celtics, tweeting the following, He's dirty, dirty player. Man, <laughs> I don't respect guys like that. To which Al Horford's uh, uh, sister tweeted, Says the guy who's touched more nuts than a peanut vendor. Now that is high quality <laughs> tweeting on behalf of the fans. I will is, say, Anna, yeah.
10: at least Anna Horford's kind of funny.
1: She is. I like, At least she, she does is. things
10: like that. Like she sort of claps back. I mean, she probably defends Al. Maybe especially there was a point when Al's first run here, where Lou Marloni, uh who is you know a pundit for us and for a radio station former in town, like was calling an average yeah. former Red Sox player. Yes called him average al like Mm -hmm. gave him that that you know nickname and she was all over it but she i will say every once in a while she says things that like make me laugh out loud me too i agree so, I'll give like, that, that at least there's like some entertainment
1: factor to it. So, changing gears, uh, I think I have to admit I was wrong, which as Marjorie knows is one of my most painful. No, you're not the only one. Me well, too. A, a, a few months into a games into this season, I was proudly saying, because this is what I always believe, even though I'm not a big fan of Tom Brady, that we now have proof that it was Brady who was behind 20 years of unparalleled uh, success, not Belichick.
10: Changing your tune, huh?
1: Everybody knows the, uh, the Patriots are on a win streak with a rookie quarterback, this guy Mac Jones, while Tom Brady is on a two-game losing streak. Here are the words of Tom Brady. He comes to a press conference after they lose to the horrible Washington football team the other day. He begins what ends up to be a 58-second post-game press conference. Here are his first few words to the assembled media. Let's start. Make it quick. Let's start. Make it quick, says Tom Brady. The tables are turning. Are they not trying to, derek Sure
10: feels like it, right? I, Tom Brady has looked more and more like a 44-year-old and less and yeah. less like a world beater lately. And uh, Bill Belichick has suddenly started to look like a world beater. And it's not like you, we were having this discussion in our show email today about it's not just Bill Belichick, the coach but Bill Belichick, the general manager, exactly. he's the architect of this team. He drafted Mac Jones. He drafted Christian Barmore. He drafted Ramondre Stevenson. He signed Matt Gidon. He signed Hunter Henry. He's, I mean, Johnny Smith, Nelson Aguilar. He signed Kendrick Bourne. Like he went out and put pieces in place for this team to be successful. And remember they started out slow. They were like mm-hmm. one, and three, and then two and four. And everyone was like, Oh, they're just going to be average. And, you know, this team just kind of can't get it together. And those, and and to a man on that team, when you asked them, they were like, we are getting better. Trust us. We're better than our record shows. We're better than our record shows. And we all sort of rolled our eyes and said, oh, sure. You're just resting on the fact that Bill Belichick's your coach. You'll be good again in November and December. Well, lo and behold, they're good again in no- at the end of October and November when they always get good. I mean, they, looked, they right now are, I just was watching NFL Network this morning and the recent power rankings for the NFL, they're eighth. They're one of wow. the top eight teams in the NFL, and they are second in the AFC East right now behind the Bills, and they have two games against the Bills in December. They've got a really tough, like, telling stretch coming up after this, this Thursday night game. They've got two against the Bills. They've got to play the Titans, who many think are, like, the second-best team in the entire NFL. And then they've got the Colts, who aren't – you know, they're great. They're probably, like, right around them, right below them. Um so it's uh they they could some people are saying they're the scariest team in the AFC right now because By the it's way, wide
1: open. You know, for those who are not big sports fans that try to keep a little simple as possible, they crushed the Cleveland Browns the other day. And from what I recall with a rookie quarterback again, forty five to seven, I think was the final. And yes, it wasn't was. wasn't Cleveland supposedly one of the top defensive teams in football? Yes. And despite that and you know, I have to say uh, I I am stunned by the the calm of this. How old is Mac Jones? Twenty two, twenty three years old. Twenty
10: three, I think.
1: I mean, are you not as a sports well, didn't it come person? From, oh, Alabama. He came from, yeah, a, but there's the guy who came from Alabama who's the quarterback for Miami. He stinks, or at least he does. I mean, it doesn't mean. Yes, it, she di- Biola.
8: Yes. But but
1: Biola. this guy is it, it is amazing the calm he shows, and he's really. And also the best I mean, Jim, of Tom they, Brady, been, been winning, the humility been of Tom by, Brady, he is embraced as a, at least as a young man. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
10: To, no, I was saying but twice this season, the Patriots have been up by so much, so many points yeah. that Brian Hoyer has come into play and Mac Jones has just taken a seat. Like how often do you just see a rookie just take a seat because mm-hmm. the team is winning so handedly that he doesn't even need to be in the game towards the end. And listen, it's he hasn't been perfect um, but yeah, he has I think far exceeded expectations. Were you surprised I mean, he's, by he's a, I'd say he's a, a favorite possibly to win next to this receiver in Cincinnati to win the offensive rookie of the Year
1: award. Are you surprised by the uh, curt nature of uh, Tom Brady? Uh, it's, uh... No,
10: because because we know what we know what a crab he is he as he's gotten older he's fine when he's winning and then he starts to lose and he just becomes like cranky tom like last week he was complaining about the 17 game season and how terrible it is but like four years ago he was all about it like and i get it you're 44 like i'm tired too tom i get it i don't i don't want to work as much as i used to but like no one's forcing you like i have to work right like i don't have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank like you could totally walk away at any time. Like you've done it. You have nothing left to prove to anyone. So okay. stop whining. And if you don't win the game, don't throw two interceptions, right? Like you threw two interceptions and they were not, it's not like a, ooh, that wasn't really his fault interception. They were like, ooh, that was a bad read interception.
2: So, so the prognosis is, once again, you hate to say this because I've been hearing this now for about 10 years, but that uh, he's too old and he needs to wrap it up.
10: I mean, I don't know for sure. I mean, if he could still go out and win the Super Bowl. But I do feel like if you're, if you are going to whine and you don't, if you don't want to have to answer, if you only want to answer questions when you win, but well, you're not going to win every game, Tom. So play better. Or just, if you don't like all the obligations for the job that you're doing, no one's making you do it anymore. That's more my point. It's not that I don't think he can play anymore. It's just more like, You can't all of a sudden be super cranky and, like, take it out on the media who's just there to do your job because you didn't do your job on the field. That's my
1: irritation. I know a little bit about super cranky. We can talk about that next week.
10: (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Trenny,
1: it's great to talk to you as always. Thanks for your time.
2: Thanks, Trenny. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Trina Kuznarek is an anchor and reporter with NBC Sports Boston and a BPR contributor. Coming up next, we'll bring you Mayor Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, swearing in. We're going to run
1: it live. Is that inc- Bo- but can we talk about this just for sure. a second here? Sure. This is just a few minutes away. I know. I know we've said a thousand times that history is being made, but history is finally really going to be made. And I even know. if you, not a Wu supporter, you might have been a Sabi George supporter, you may not be from Boston. This is a really important moment. For well, city.
2: when you think of Boston, kind of rough and tumble Boston, often corrupt Boston, often run by Irish Americans like myself, Boston. I mean, this is not the person you picture to be the mayor of Boston. She's a, a really smart, really talented, uh, really tiny uh, <laughs> Asian woman, and she won in a landslide, landslide. I feel, over Sabi George. So, uh, we'll we'll see what happens. The, the daughter of Taiwanese immigrants. First language is Mandarin. I mean it's pretty exciting.
1: So we're gonna bring you the ceremony and right after the ceremony we will take your calls about people's expectations, Bostonians, and not about the Wu administration right here in Boston. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. We're just a couple of minutes away from uh, the live swearing-in ceremony of uh, Michelle Wu as the 60-something, I can't remember the number, 60-something mayor of Boston. 56, thank you very much. Uh, Thank you very much, Zoe. And obviously the first person who's not a white guy. Here's what uh, we're told is going to happen. One, both Wu and acting mayor Kim Janey will uh, speak Uh, here. The Pledge of Allegiance will be led by a Boston public school student. That is terrific. Eliana Rivas is the name of the student. Then there'll be an invocation provided by Reverend Dr. Arlene Hall. A municipal court judge in Boston, Justice Myung Jun, will deliver the oath of office to Wu. And Wu's people are saying the speech is actually going to be quite brief because, one, she wants to get to work uh, in the mayor's office on the other side of City Hall to get Begin and apparently the more I guess the more traditional inauguration ceremony will happen uh, when the city councilors are sworn in in January. I assume you know that the reason there is this very odd early swearing swearing in is because there was an acting mayor. Ordinarily, this swearing in would be in January, giving much more time to the mayor elect to get her act together, and it puts a lot of pressure on her as well because I, I think people aren't going to say, "Well, you only had two weeks." So uh, we'll give you a longer honeymoon than we may give something else. One of the things about this campaign that we mentioned yesterday with the two climate activists who joined us, uh, not only is there a mandate, I would argue, based upon the large vote that she received, uh, landslide vote, but also virtually everybody, if you stopped them on the street, would say, oh, she's the one who ran on rent control, the Green New Deal. And free in the tea. So unlike in most elections where there's sort of this amorphous notion, Marjorie, as to what it is that the individual who was elected stands for, here, uh, I think this is great, actually. I think most of the constituents and people in surrounding towns know exactly what Michelle Wu stands for, and uh, it's going to be a lot of pressure on her to deliver.
2: Well, you know, Sabi George talked a lot about during the race about how uh, she was too much of an idealist, and, and, and that may be proven true. I ho- but But on the other hand... When you look at this piece she did in the Globe today about you know our moment to walk together,
1: Michelle Wu we'll did. Yeah, I love soon. this
2: line, and maybe I'm being too pie in the sky here, but she says, "This city was founded on a revolutionary promise that things don't have to be as they always have been; that we can chart a new path for families now, for generations to come, grounded in justice and opportunity." So it's kind of pie high in the pie in the sky, and you know very uplifting. But you know, we're We're a coastal city. City that's just going along, like climate change isn't going to matter. We're a school system that we've been trying to fix for forty years. She's not been nearly as radical and revolutionary in schools as I wish she's been, but. Are we ever going to to do that? Yeah, but can I tell you,
1: let me just tell you something. The the implication, with all respect to Asabi George, that you can't be both things, you can't be a visionary, and we have no idea if she'll be able to achieve her vision, but a visionary and a Menino, Menino-like, as he was called, urban mechanic is preposterous. I don't know if a new mayor can do anything. Well, not new mayor yet. Obviously, we'll see in operation. Well, but, it, but the reality, I mean, how many times did she say in the closing uh, phase of this campaign, that her first job in City Hall was to work for Tom Menino. Why was that? I don't think it was to get the Menino vote. Was to say that's the man whom you identify with fixing the potholes, doing all the things that my opponent says I don't care about. I learned at the knee of Tom Menino, and, and my assumption is she's going to focus. Uh, she. And she's a really smart person Tom she's going Manino. to focus as much on the daily concerns yeah. of people as the big but issues.
2: Tom and was elected in 1993. I mean, that is a long, long well, time ago. What's your ago. point? Well, the point is that, the, that, the, that things are kind of in a crisis in many ways in Boston. But does that
1: preclude you from doing other things while you're dealing with a crisis? No, I don't...
2: no, but I, I kind of think that one of the big problems in Boston is affordable housing. I think this—I mean, I don't want to get into the race, but I think Asabi George might have been a little compromised on that uh, on that uh, situation with with the, the development issues involving her her husband. I think she didn't want to. She really but... liked
1: that when you raised it, by the way. Well, really I, I'm sorry,
2: one. but it was it no. Was, I think to you did me, right it was the right thing. Totally the right and thing. The, and the, and Michelle Wu has been very tough on planning in Boston. Uh, Asabi George didn't want to do much about the cops. And Michelle Wu has had a different position about the cops. So I think those are really big-time issues, which were not uh, big-time issues when Tomonino became the mayor. Oh, I
1: totally agree. I'm just saying I think that a smart person who's well thought out has the ability to walk and chew gum at the same time, which is what she's going to do. The Globe story this morning on what lays ahead of her is there's zillions of union contracts that deal with not just the police union. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty tough nut to crack, too. You're listening to – you're listening to a- 89.7 GBH. We are minutes away from the swearing-in ceremony, which will bring you live of uh, Michelle Wu. What did you say, Zoe? 56th mayor of Boston? Is that what it was? For some reason, I can't remember. 56th mayor of Boston, Michelle uh, Wu. And I she's just... doing it at City Hall, apparently because she wants to say, and she will say, that I really need to get right to work. It's in the city council chamber that this swearing-in is happening. By the
2: way, I've just slipped this in. Uh, a federal jury... Uh, yesterday ruled that the boston that's the taxpayers of boston mm-hmm. have to pay 2 million dollars to a high ranking female detective in a gender discrimination a case and you know the the, m- the missteps of the boston cops are costing the taxpayers of Boston, millions and millions of dollars.
1: Yeah, well, uh, if there's ever anybody who's going to watch the police union uh, negotiation closely, I would say it might be you. So uh,
11: uh, I don't know how you're going to get in the room.
1: But And by the way, I have an announcement to make sure. We might as well make it now. We haven't said it before. A tradition we started with Deval Patrick about 15 years ago at another station. Ask the governor, mayor, attorney general, uh, mayor-elect for another few minutes, uh, Michelle Wu, has agreed to start monthly Ask the Mayor with us on this show starting next Tuesday at noon, the 23rd of November. Again, noon to one, Mayor Wu will be kind enough to join us to take our questions and all your calls on her first Ask the Mayor uh, in what will be, as it was for her predecessor, a monthly Thing here, And we're very excited, and we thank the mayor for agreeing to this. You
2: know, after my lauding her for her lofty language and her idealistic view of what she can yeah. do with Boston, Art from West I just burst my bubble, says she's the one, that's who, who ran on big promises that she can't make happen unless others, the MBTA, the legislature, and the unions go along with their plans.
1: Well, you know, not only the MBTA, <laughs> the unions, all that stuff, but as we said in our final interview—well, not our final interview that we talked to her on Election Day, too— is uh, freeing the tea, so to speak, making the tea free, uh, doing rent control are dependent upon the state legislature and the governor buying in. We asked the governor the week before if he would do, if he can imagine uh, doing uh, a a rent control thing, and he said it was unlikely. Uh, Was it rent control we broached with him or was it uh, a free tea? I can't remember. What was that that we broached with Governor Baker? Whatever it was, it was one of the two priorities both. of hers. I don't know if it was uh, was or not. And he subsequently said, in terms of the tea, he said this on the Channel Five Sunday Morning <laughs> Show that if Boston paid for <laughs> right. it himself, well, maybe he'd <laughs> he'd uh, uh, consider it. But I don't think that's uh, actually going to happen. So again, you're listening to uh, Boston Public Radio. We're minutes away. From a 12 o'clock – it's now 12.07, of course – the 12 o'clock ceremony, swearing-in ceremony at the city council chamber at Boston City Hall of uh, Michelle Wu.
2: You know, uh, Roberto just reminded me of a great little factoid I was talking about. This has long been an Irish – run by Irish-Americans, Boston has – Hazel Chu served as Lord Mayor of Dublin from 2020 to June 2021. yeah. She, story of course, yeah. is an Asian woman that was running an entire city that uh, is made up of Irish people. So that's a great point, Roberto. Thank you for reminding us of that. So we are, as we said, waiting for the uh, from a speech from Michelle Wu. She said she's – I also thought was interesting in her piece, too, when she talked about arriving in Boston as a – uh, from Chicago as the children of Taiwanese immigrants. You got to
1: Harvard, right? That's why she came here originally?
2: Uh, yes. She yeah. came here um, to go to school. But she talked about going to City Hall. People that have been to City Hall. You know, is that Brutus? What do they call that? I think it's brutus called – period construction is or something it called like called Brutal? That. Uh, brutal. Something like brutalist, that. Brutalist. Thank you. Adrian. Brutalist. Thank you very much. Anyway, City Hall in my – Money is kind of an ugly building. It's an ugly A lot building. of people will defend the brutalist construction, but I'm not one of them. And you go there, and it's big, and it's cold, and it's this dark stone, and all this kind of stuff. She talked about how the first time she set in Bo- set foot in Boston City Hall, she said I felt invisible. Swallowed up by the cavernous concrete hallways, and shrunk down with even with every checkpoint and looming government counter. And I mean, that's so interesting too to come and have to negotiate things uh, uh, for her parents. And she talked about how her parents tried to stay away from those government places because they were immigrants, mm-hmm. and how um, now here she is running that brutish. Concrete hallway building.
1: Brutalist, too. Uh, By the way, it was. I just checked. uh, Governor Baker, the issue that we broached with him was rent control. And he said he'd leave the door open, but he was unlikely to support that. So she's got a lot of convincing to do. And I would say, you know, even Marty Walsh, who came from the legislature, had a tough time convincing his former colleagues Of a lot of things. And I I have to say one of the things that this whole home rule petition thing where to do a bunch of things, any of Massachusetts, 351 cities and towns need to get the state legislature's approval. Can you explain to me why uh, rent control is a perfect example, whether you're for it or against it? If this duly elected city council of Boston thinks rent control is a good idea or rent stabilization, as uh, Michelle Wu calls it, and Michelle Wu as mayor signs it into law... What business is it of a state rep from Tewkesbury or Amherst as to whether what happens within the borders of the city? I think it is appropriate for the legislature and the governor to weigh in on those local issues, in quote, that spill over into surrounding communities, obviously. But this one does not. This talks about how the people and developers and landowners and landlords of Boston are treated. But that's the state of the home rule petition uh petition law well one thing we do know about michelle Wu, i should say is uh, she is not george w bush george w. <laughs> w bush as you probably know and i love this about him uh when george bush would call a cabinet meeting at nine o'clock uh-huh. if a cabinet member showed up at 901 what happened to the cabinet member locked out locked out <laughs> the door would lock at nine o'clock everything started exactly on time Michelle Wu is not. Marjorie's suggesting, I think she's wise. We may have to interrupt you. But if you want to give us a buzz at 877-301-8970, we'll obviously have to cut you off as soon as the uh, swearing-in ceremony begins. What do you expect from Michelle Wu? Is it pie-in-the-sky stuff, as her opponent in the final, Anissa Sabi-George, suggested it? Or, as I believe, I don't know if... What? Anybody can accomplish until they do it. Can she do some of these visionary things that Marjorie thinks are existential? And I think they are, particularly Green New Deal things. At the same time that she's addressing the daily sort of potholian, if that's a word, (laughs) potholian needs (laughs) – that is a, That actually says it pretty well, doesn't it? That's a really that's, that's good a one. That's a new
2: word, Jim. Thank you. I think, congratulations. Thank
1: you very kindly. I appreciate the potholian needs of the – not just the people of Boston. Marjorie and I don't live in Boston. I would argue no. that we depend upon a well-run city, which is where we're standing right now in Brighton. We're both mm-hmm. in the studio in Brighton as anybody who lives here, and we don't get to vote. By the way, that's a whole other issue about whether or not people who work in cities uh, should be able to vote in local elections. That's for another day, but I actually think – That's something that should be explored. I think I have as much of an investment in the city... As somebody who well, lives here, does. I feel
2: surrounded does. by. Yeah, I go three houses in one direction. I'm in Boston. Three houses. You're the border. For God, so I feel yeah. like I kind of am halfway in one place and halfway in another. Anyway, eight seven seven three zero one eight nine seven zero. Bprwgbh dot org is the email if you want to weigh in before we actually hear from the new mayor herself on the fact that we do have a new mayor, Michelle Wu, the first woman, the first woman of color, uh, and a transplant that which which became, thanks to you, Jim, kind of an issue in the election. Oh, yeah. The uh, the, yeah. the, she's from Chicago. She's not from Boston. Uh, Asabi George was from Boston. And uh, people did seem to care about, apparently not, in the voting. But th- they did like the fact that, that Asabi George was from Boston. I think she got some credit. didn't seem to Well, transform. she may have,
1: but it was, was a, a the numbers don't lie. This was what Is called a landslide. It is a crushing. There's, as I said to the two young climate activists yesterday, who you missed, you would have loved, by the way. I would have loved them. A senior at Northeastern and a senior on leave at Tufts. Uh, You can't claim that she doesn't have a mandate. I mean, I think this is worth repeating. One, because of the size of her victory. And two, because, as I said to you about 10 minutes ago, uh, this is a circumstance where – Virtually everybody knows what she stands for. It's not one of these murky, I stand for the children and making sure elders are protected. She was very specific, and most people can recite the things that were at the top of her agenda. So uh, there's going to have to be accountability, which I think is not only healthy for the populace, but is also healthy for the elected official.
2: You know what else? While so many of us are doubting the United States of America's ability to to accomplish much of Mm -hmm. anything— Anymore, when you look at the, you know that that
1: just did the infrastructure signing yesterday, we did. The biggest infrastructure we bill did. maybe ever. We
2: did, and and for which he gets very little credit. Um, but when you look at people saying that this next bill, this you know that would expand child care help, expand elder Climate care change helps, helps, stuff, yeah. that one of four Americans. Don't think it would benefit them. It's not
1: their fault. This is the. I'll quote Marjorie again: the worst sell job.
2: Yeah, but you know what? Since
1: Barack Obama you know and the what? Affordable Care Act, I,
2: I, I, don't. I've never bought that whole thing. I mean, you're you, the one that
1: says it all the it time. It is
2: a lousy. It is a lousy selling job. But I mean, I think people have a little obligation to be informed, and I just don't think people take that obligation seriously.
1: Kevin and Sandwich, you your first on Boston Public Radio? Again, we may have to interrupt you, but thank you for calling, Kevin. Hi. Hi, I can't wait to be interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> i'll do my best <laughs> uh, okay
4: uh marjorie it's interesting how you described uh michelle Wu as small tiny um
2: well I called her tiny she's she physically she's 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 tiny <laughs> I,
4: I guess i would describe her as a giant um for what she's done uh, just interesting how you uh asian and tiny were somehow uh your descriptions,
2: oh Kevin! I mean, come on! I'm just talking about her physical stature. She's not a big brawny guy, you know. She's not like Tom Manino or 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 Walsh or anything. She's just in physical stature. She's thin and she's not that tall. So she's... she was
1: describing the differences from yeah. those who came before, and I have to say, yeah. I'm sitting in the room. So with her. You, I think your Asian you reference is off base. Yeah, no, well, he is saying that. I tried. Well, me nuts. Kevin,
2: finish your point. Finish your point. So he's saying I shouldn't have said that because she's Asian. Is that what you're saying?
4: I just thought, I thought it was interesting, your uh, your description. Um, Kevin, so, thanks.
1: Period. I I can't. I mean, he's basically saying it was racist, and it wasn't racist, and I'm sorry he took it that way. 877-301-8970 is our number again. We're 1215. We're still waiting for the swearing and ceremony, which, by the way, according to Wu's, mayor, soon-to-be Mayor Wu's uh, people, will be quite brief, uh, again, because they want the image of a mayor, a newly sworn-in mayor, to be getting right to work. Uh, and all she's going to be doing is going to another part of City Hall. You've been in the mayor's office. It's got I a, have. I'm, you know, I, really, oh, I don't it's think really, I ever have. It's got It's an really incredible. View, towards Faneuil Hall, right? Is yeah, that you got a yeah?
2: huge w- window that looks out over Faneuil Hall, this big, long table. I told you I went down there to interview Tom Nino back right. a million years ago when he first became the mayor. And, you know was difficult to understand him. <laughs> it didn't matter to hoots. I mean, he went through his entire career and people would joke about how he talked about having an alcatraz around his neck instead of an albatross or, uh, albatross around his neck and people talked about how, you know, he was talking about people conjugating on the commons, I remember.
1: You know what the you know what I, <laughs> all these
2: things and people people loved him. Well, you, and know, you know, what... know what else people loved? I mean, that that was like the standard line mm-hmm. about know, is that you Almost everybody in the city knew him or had seen him. I was just going to say there were
1: polls him. in the Boston Globe. It wasn't just him, it was Mayor Flynn and Mayor Walsh, and I'm sure Mayor Will will follow that tradition. There were polls where people said over 50% of the people who lived in Boston said they had met the mayor, not seen him at an event, but had actually met the mayor, which is huge in a small, big city, if that's not oxymoronic. That's a pretty big thing, don't you think?
2: I do. I think it's a very big deal. I think people it made them people them feel close to him, and as if they could be heard. Mike from Roxbury, thanks for calling.
1: Hey, Mike. Hey, how you guys doing? Good. So I just wanted to follow up on a couple of comments
5: you said, um, pie in the sky, and and I definitely think uh, you know some of the ideas that uh, uh, Mayor-elect Michelle will have are kind of pie in the sky, but. I'd rather have a mayor shooting for the moon, so to speak, rather yeah. than just maintaining the status quo. And I just I feel agree. like her opponent is really just going to maintain the status quo. Um, and then on top of that, you mentioned uh, folks in Boston uh, should be able to vote in um, municipal elections that don't
12: live there, but yeah. they've
5: worked in it. Open to that. But I also want to point out that Michelle Wu is in favor of letting taxpaying permanent residents that are waiting for her, their citizenship to be able yeah. to vote municipal elections, where her opponent, was emphatically no, which I found kind of disturbing because both her parents immigrated from Poland and Tunisia.
1: Mike, so, that was a great call, I think- but I got to cut you off because the ceremony is uh, beginning. And we will tell you in a second who you're about to first hear, but you're about to hear them. This is from the city council chamber at City Hall, as we said a minute ago. Not at some lavish site, but right there at City Hall, which I think is pretty symbolic. Michelle Wu is walking into the room. Matt O'Malley, who's the acting president of the city council, is there. Kim Janey walked in as well. Look at her kids. She's there with her husband. (laughs) Two little boys. Two little kids. All dressed up. It's great. Yeah, she's wearing a mask, uh, actually. As are everybody in the room is wearing a mask. I believe Marguerite as best I can tell Matt O'Malley is not, but everybody is sitting in the audiences. Michelle Wu is waving to the crowd seconds before history is about to be made in our city of Boston. She is now ascending. Good
13: afternoon, everybody. My name is Matt O'Malley. I am the city council president pro tempore, and I'm delighted to welcome each and every one of you today for this remarkable occasion. First, some housekeeping items. Please, masks will be worn at all time by everyone except those who are speaking at that moment. And please either turn off or silence your cell phone or electronic device. Governor Baker, Senator Markey, Senator Warren, Mayor Janey, to all of our colleagues at city government, county government, and state government, to the Wu and Pawarski families, to the countless friends. On behalf of Mayor-elect Wu, to every Bostonian, welcome to City Hall for this incredibly important and moving day. This is a great day in our city's nearly 400-year history, and much has been written about the long trek to freedom, the long walk to freedom. In a city that is 391 years old, that is certainly true today, but nevertheless even more special as we gather together for the swearing in of the first woman elected mayor and the first person of color elected mayor in Boston's 391-year history.
1: By when Matt O'Malley referred to Pawarski, Connor Pawarski is the name of Michelle Wu's husband. Matt O'Malley, the interim president of the Boston City Council, is currently speaking.
13: It is a solemn day, and it is a joyful day, and it is a day that I know we are all so proud of our city and our new mayor. We have a very brief speaking program before the oath of office will be administered. So please, if you would begin by joining me in welcoming Eliani Rivas, who is a junior at Fenway High School. She will lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. If you are able, please rise. Ms. Rivas.
1: love that they're using the Boston Public Schools, I, I pledge allegiance I to is. the
14: flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all.
13: Thank you, Ms. Rivas. Now, if you would please join me in welcoming for the invocation, the Reverend Dr. Arlene Hall. Dr. Hall is the pastor of the Deliverance Temple Worship Center in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Reverend Doctor, the floor is yours.
0: Good morning. morning. Will you please rise on your feet as we look to the Lord in prayer. Hallelujah. Father God, we thank you for this day. A day that you have made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. An historic day in the city of Boston, where your words have not gone forth empty, but you have accomplished that which you said would happen with the Wu's campaign. And so today, we thank you for Michelle Wu. Thank you for her life's journey that have led her to this point. You knew her before she was born. You knew before she came Boston to be a student here that she would be at this point, hallelujah, at this junction, that she would be standing on the threshold of becoming the first elected female mayor of Boston. And on this, the week before Thanksgiving, we gather here to say thank you. Thank you, Father, for what you have done. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing. And we thank you for what you will continue to do. I thank you for the shoulders that she's standing on. The shoulder of her mother. The shoulder, oh God, of Mayor King Janie. The shoulder, oh God, of Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, The shoulder of Senator Elizabeth Warren. The shoulder of... Countless uh, hallelujah women that have stand in the trenches and serve the city. we thank you. we thank you Thank you for Michelle the city councillor Michelle the campaign woman Michelle the one that walk and knock on doors, the candidate. But today, we switch gear, and we lift up before you, Michelle, the mayor of Boston. We pray not for the campaign, but we pray for the Wu's administration. We pray not for the candidate, but we pray for the mayor of Boston. And like Paul declared in Ephesians one, I ask you today that you will give Mayor Ah uh, Michelle Wu the spirit of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, the spirit of revelation to rest upon her. Hey, like the men of Esichar, give her understanding to know what to do and when to do it. Oh, like Naomi and Ruth, Lord God, give her strategic directions. Like Deborah, give her boldness in the spirit. And like Ruth, give her a love for the people, a love for the city, and a love for you. Reveal unto her the strategies that are needed for this unprecedented moment. Let your angels indeed go ahead of her now and prosper her journey cover her we pray thee today with the blood of Jesus put an edge of protection around her and like you declare in your word no weapon formed against her shall prosper we commit her into your capable hand and Jesus we follow your example father into your hand we commit Mayor Michelle Wu Do in her, do for her, do through her what she cannot do without you. And we will be grateful to give you the praise, give you the glory, and give you the honor for what you've already done, what you're doing in the now, and what you'll continue to do in the days and in the weeks and months to come. And when she gets tired... And when the days seem too long, reminder of your promise that you will never leave her or forsake her. You will be with her always, even to the end. We ask you these blessings in the name of Jesus the Christ. And let the people of Boston, with the spirit of agreement, say amen. Amen.
1: Reverend Dr. Arlene Hall, you're listening to 89.7 GBH.
13: Thank you, Reverend Dr. Hall, for those beautiful and inspiring words. Um, Before we get along, I also wanted to acknowledge and welcome um, an incredible individual uh, who spent a lot of time in this building. Um, She sat next to me for eight years. Now she is standing up for all of us in Washington, D.C., Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley. Welcome, (laughs) Congresswoman Pressley. now my honor to introduce our next speaker, an individual who has led with class, with distinction, with honor over the last eight months during an incredibly difficult time of transition, of turmoil, of pandemic. Mayor Kim Janey has been a steady hand at the till here in Boston. She's been a remarkable leader. She is a dear friend. Please join me in welcoming Mayor Kim Janey.
1: You're listening to live coverage of the swearing in of Michelle Wu right here on 89.7 GVH.
14: Thank you so much, Councilor O'Malley. I also want to thank Senator Warren, Senator Markey. I want to thank Representative Presley, Governor Baker, our state legislators, our county officials, and certainly the Boston City Council. I want to thank you all for all the ways that you work to make Boston better. When I was sworn in as the 55th mayor of our great city, I said it was a new day. When a little black girl from Roxbury, who grew up seeing the worst of our city, can grow up to be Boston's first woman mayor and first mayor of color, it was a new day indeed. For many in Boston, we were now able to see what is possible, that Boston could truly be a city for everyone, even those who had been marginalized. It was transformative. Yes, it was a new day indeed. But this new day had been dawning for a while, and so many people have helped to usher it in. A new day was dawning when Mel King, who we just celebrated on Saturday, made history almost 40 years ago when he ran for mayor, showing us the power of a multiracial, multigenerational coalition and the power of love. A new day was dawning when Ayanna Presley became the first woman of color elected to the Boston City Council, paving the way for a council that is now majority people of color and majority women. And a new day was dawning when Michelle Wu became the first Asian-American woman elected to the council and the first woman of color to lead the council, and now the first woman elected to lead our great city. I could share with you countless stories of our work together and why I supported you uh, in the race for mayor. I could tell all the ways that we've worked together to make this city better. But as I leave office now as mayor, I feel good knowing that you share my love and my passion for Boston. I'm confident that you will lead our city with integrity and that you will center equity in all that you do. I know that Boston is in good hands, and I am so proud to call you Madam Mayor.
1: That was Acting Mayor Kim Janey. Obviously, I guess she'll return to the City Council until January, I'm assuming. And... uh, We're minutes away from the swearing-in of Michelle Wu.
13: Thank you, Mayor Janey, for those beautiful words. We are now approaching the moment we have all been waiting for. Um, And I will just begin by saying, Boston has been called a city without peer. We are tough, we are resilient, we are smart, we are inspirational, much like our new mayor. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the Honorable Judge, Associate Justice of the Boston Municipal Court, Judge Myung John, as he administers the oath of office to our mayor. Your Honor.
1: Michelle Wu is motioning for her family, her husband and her two little kids to join her up at the podium for the swearing in.
12: I Michelle Wu I Michelle Wu do solemnly swear
11: Do solemnly swear
12: that I will bear true faith and allegiance That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts To the
11: Commonwealth of Massachusetts
12: and will support the constitution thereof
11: And will support the constitution thereof
12: So help me God
11: So help me God
12: I Michelle Wu I Michelle Wu do solemnly swear
11: Do solemnly swear
12: that I will faithfully and impartially
11: that i will faithfully and impartially
12: discharge and perform
11: discharge and perform
12: all the duties incumbent on me
11: all the duties incumbent on me
12: as mayor of the city of boston
11: as mayor of the city of boston
12: according to the best of my abilities and understanding
11: according to the best of my abilities and understanding
12: agreeably to the rules and regulations
11: agreeably to the rules and regulations of the
12: constitution and the laws of the commonwealth
11: Of the Constitution and the laws of the commonwealth. So help me God. So help me God.
12: I, Michelle Wu. I, Michelle Wu. Do solemnly swear.
11: Do solemnly swear.
12: That I will support.
11: That I will support.
12: The Constitution.
11: The Constitution.
12: Of the United States.
11: Of the United States.
12: So help me God. So help me God. Madam Mayor, congratulations.
1: Michelle Wu is Mayor. Of the city of Boston. You're listening to 89.7 GBH. In a couple of seconds, we will hear her comments, which her uh, people say will be brief. Hugging her kids. Her older son, it appeared, held the Bible that she had in her left hand. little
2: blue vest.
1: What's that? A little <laughs> blue vest there? <laughs> they, uh, yeah, they really both wear
2: this identical vest. They look adorable.
1: You know, what's interesting, Marjorie, other than Matt O'Malley, who obviously had a formal position here, every single person who Mayor Wu chose to participate in this program is a person of color, which uh, interesting sea change happening in a lot of levels at the Boston City Hall. Crowd is all on their feet. Thank you.
11: Thank you, Judge. Thank you, Eliana, Pastor Hall, of course, my mayor. And good afternoon, Wu-Train family. We are back together so soon. I have missed you over the last two weeks, and I'm so grateful for the chance to spend time over these 14 days with so many committed public servants in our city, getting updated, getting up to speed on everything happening here. Thank you, Mayor Janey, for your beautiful remarks and for your trailblazing leadership, and most of all, for being a friend and someone I admire so much. Thank you, Senator Warren, Senator Markey, Governor Baker, to all of our elected colleagues and leaders and and community members. I'm so grateful that you're sharing in this moment today. Thank you especially to the Boston City Council for hosting us here. President Pro Temp, Matt O'Malley, sitting members, and incoming new councillors-elect Ruthie Lujan, Aaron Murphy, Brian Worrell, Kendra Hicks, and Tanya Fernandez Anderson. Thank you so much. Congratulations, and I can't wait to celebrate for real in January. And thank you, Boston. I am so honored to stand here in this chamber that has meant so much to me as your next mayor. The first time I set foot in Boston City Hall, I felt invisible, swallowed up by the maze of echoing concrete hallways, intimidated by the checkpoints and looming government counters, reminded of why my immigrant family tried to stay away from spaces like this. But our family struggles brought me to an internship with Mayor Menino and his Chief of Staff, Mitch Weiss, and an unexpected full circle journey over the last decade. Today, I know City Hall's passageways and stairwells like my own home, but this space is the most special. I learned the ropes of city government and politics on this floor held the gavel on this floor, nursed babies on this floor, delivered paid parental leave on this floor, language access, language access, food justice, housing protections, climate progress, and I've reveled in the growing representation and power of our communities that our Boston City Council continues to embody. But since we're here today, I must share that the council floor wasn't always this way. When I joined the council, this space wasn't fully accessible to everyone. The floor that so many of you all are sitting on today was actually much lower, designed as a pit three steps down, part of a striking feature of what many or I would call a beautiful building in City Hall. I've earned the mandate to call this a beautiful building. (laughs) Three steps down prevented Bostonians in wheelchairs and with mobility challenges from coming down directly to testify and advocate for change. Three steps down were a barrier between our government and the people we are here to serve. So we changed this space, reshaped it to be accessible for everyone, and brought the floor up three steps. When we make City Hall more accessible, we are all raised up. When we communicate in many languages, we all understand more. And most of all, when we connect the power of city government to the force of our neighborhoods and communities, we see how much is possible for our city. City government is special. We are the level closest to the people, so we must do the big and the small. Every streetlight, Every pothole, every park, every classroom lays the foundation for greater change. Not only is it possible for Boston to deliver basic city services and generational change, it is absolutely necessary in this moment. We'll tackle our biggest challenges by getting the small things right, by getting City Hall out of City Hall into our neighborhoods, block by block, street by street. After all, Boston was founded on a revolutionary promise that things don't have to be as they always were, that we can chart a new path for families now and for generations to come, grounded in justice and opportunity. And we can take steps to raise us all up to that promise together. Several weeks ago, at Roxbury Community College, I met a young leader and student in our community. Brandon lives in Mattapan and takes the 28 bus to class. He found out one day from a local business on Blue Hill Ave that the mayor of Boston had worked to make the 28 bus free, and it changed his life. What used to be a a frequent headache every other day or so of asking mom for $2 or trying to, to get the fares to get to class on time opened up into justice and opportunity. For Brandon and for our communities, Our charge is to see every person and listen, to meet people where they are, to give hope and deliver on it, to find joy in the words of the amazing Kim Janey and spread it. Let history note not just who she was in this office, but all she got done and all she will continue to do for our city. Our charge is to fight urgently for our future. For the young people at the Burke High School who are here with us today, who hosted me earlier, for Blaze and Cass, for Ellie and Addie, for all of our kids and their kids to come. The first time I set foot in City Hall, I felt invisible. But today, I see what's possible in this building, and I see all the public servants raising us up. Frontline workers, first responders, teachers, bus drivers, building inspectors, city workers. I am deeply honored to work alongside you, and I ask everyone to join me in expressing our gratitude for your service. everyone to join us in the service of our communities. Boston, our charge is clear. We need everyone to join us in the work of doing the big and the small, getting City Hall out of City Hall, into our neighborhoods, and embracing the possibility of this city. The reason to make a Boston for everyone is because we need everyone for Boston right now. We have so much work to do, and it will take all of us to get it done. So let's get to work.
1: You just heard mayor elect Michelle Wu become mayor. Michelle Wu, brief as promised, and I'll repeat what I said a minute ago. I think it's pretty dramatic, Marguerite, yeah, it that was. every single person she chose to be part of her swearing-in ceremony, every single one was a person of color reflecting the incredible change that we're about to see at City Hall.
2: Well, it was very brief. It was a nine-minute speech. She repeated uh, some of what she said in her op-ed this morning in The Globe that Boston was founded on a revolutionary promise, mm-hmm. that things don't have to be as they've always been. We can chart a new path now for generations to come. She addressed the uh, one of the issues in the campaign, that she was too much of a visionary, not much of a pothole yeah. person. She said city services and generational change can both be done together. She mentioned every single streetlight and every single pothole. She could take care of those things while she looked at those bigger so-called visionary things. She also gave a, a, a very good story. I mean, she talked about how uh, she came into politics as an intern in Mayor mm-hmm. office and learned a lot about city politics. And, and Mayor Menino's, uh, it, during his administration, how she took her little 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 babies to school, nurse babies on the floor, the fifth floor down there, um, delivered play, parental lead, worked a lot about food access. But she also told a great symbolic story about the chamber that used to be three steps down so that you couldn't get in there if you were somehow uh, physically challenged, either in a wheelchair, you had trouble walking, whatever. And they moved it uh, three steps up, and she talked about this was uh, a wonderful she didn't use the word symbol. I'm using the word symbol, but a symbol of how she wanted her administration to be accessible to everybody uh, that when we speak in different languages, then everybody can learn something. And when uh, we are made – when the city is made more accessible, then – Everyone gets raised up. So it was very nice, I thought.
1: Um, I thought so, too. Speech. And a brief ceremony. As She said there'll be a more elaborate one when she's sworn in in January. Well, I don't know if it's sworn in. Whatever happens in January with her city council class uh, colleagues, I thought it was pretty classy, too, to mention the newly elected members of the city council who probably didn't think they were going to get to and be part of the spotlight today, which was great.
2: All the things she said about uh, uh, Kim Janey. Yeah, talked about her trailblazing too, leadership. Yeah. And most yeah. of all, she admired her uh, as a friend. So it was very, very up beat very classy uh it was it was terrific and you know what it was unusual for politicians brief brief <laughs>
1: <laughs> mayor mary from boston has been on hold for about i don't know a half hour so you obviously have something you really want to say mary so welcome to the show thanks for calling us
15: hi thanks so much for having me i've sure. been a long-time listener and this is the first time i've gotten through so i We're okay. thrilled
1: you're here thank you mary <laughs>
15: I'm a South End uh, resident of 30 years, and I am tremendously excited this day. Uh, I'm also an immigrant, and I will tell you that uh, I initially supported Andrea Campbell. I thought she and Michelle Wu were the strongest candidates of the field, although you know, I didn't hate anybody running. <laughs> I thought there were a lot of capable people, but I thought they were the best. And uh, Andrea Campbell didn't make it through, and I will say uh, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Canada. My parents were born in Athens, Greece. I was so turned off by Anissa Asabi-George, you know, putting on the sick I, I heard her. My daughter went to Boston Latin. I heard her when she was a counselor talking with Tito Jackson about education issues, and she sounded like a normal, intelligent woman. And then she came out on the chem- campaign trail with this dog whistle, you know, heavy dot accent, sounding like Amy Poehler on the stage going, you know, you're not better than me. You know, she was <laughs> making very... Uh, I found it offensive comments to the effect that, you know, oh, this person isn't from here. She doesn't know our city. And so I am beyond delighted that a new day has dawned in our city and we can elect the best person for the job, not the person who looks like the other people who've been in power for 300 years. So I am well, ecstatic.
1: <laughs> well, we're really glad you stayed on hold to make those yeah, Mary, comments. Thank Mary, you. thank you very much for the call. We appreciate it.
2: what do you think? Thank you.
1: What did I think of the speech? Yes. I thought it was good. I thought it was really good. I think brief, the story, brief. a story you didn't mention, they were all good stories, the story about the kid on the 28 bus and the free bus. Oh, yeah. Bus. That's a great
2: one. Tell that and, to people. Well, that I mean, people hear just it.
1: heard it, you know, a, a, a pathway to opportunity. I thought she touched all the right notes. And as you say, I'm a big... Boy, but does it sound uh, incredibly hypocritical for me to say I'm a big fan of brevity, the longest-winded <laughs> person in the history of broadcast media well, in this Well, not country. everyone
2: has such insightful exactly. remarks to make as you, Jim.
1: No, but that was a, uh, that was a uh, pretty great thing. And I want to repeat what I said before that we're really si- excited about, too. Uh, Mayor Wu has agreed to continue a tradition that we started or Deval Patrick started with us 15-plus years ago where mayors, uh, governors – Uh, attorneys general, and other public officials are kind enough to join us every month and not only answer our questions, but uh, when they can, answer your questions as well. And Mayor Wu has agreed to start that monthly Ask the Mayor with us uh, next Tuesday, November 23rd. She'll be with us from noon to one to answer our questions, and much more importantly, for the first time here, uh, questions of all of you. So we hope you will join us uh, next uh, Tuesday. This is pretty exciting, and you know, I hope in this wildly divided world we live in that people who are not Woo supporters can at least take a day and appreciate how important this day is for the city. Do Did you, you, you mention
2: that she's thirty-six years old?
1: She, no, it's, no. Let me tell you, I didn't know if Born I should in even mention that. Nineteen eighty-five. Nineteen eighty-five. I mean, it really <laughs> is. It talk about a new day. It is really. Yeah. It is truly incredible. uh, She's
2: also got two little kids who are all dressed up, like I said, in their little matching vest They were dark blue, I guess, royal blue, you say, in the front, maybe powder blue in the back. They looked adorable. They're Boston's uh, 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 public school kids. Uh, You you often find mayors in some cities, I think like in in New York City or other cities where the mayor is not – got their kids in the Boston public Schools, So it's pretty neat, I think, that she, well, uh, that she brought her kids and they were looked so cute and all that.
1: Well, it was also really interesting. I'm going to be interviewing Lee Pelton tonight, who's the relatively new head of the Boston Foundation. Yeah. They put out a report just today, I think, called Multiracial in Greater Boston, Leading Edge of Democratic, uh, Demographic Change. And they uh, mentioned in the introduction of this thing that obviously Barack Obama, Uh, had a black father and a white mother and mentioned that the three leading uh, three highest ranking candidates at the uh, end of this uh, mayoral thing were in uh, uh, mixed race marriages, uh, multiracial marriages, which uh, is really I mean, a lot of history is made today in a wonderful way. And again, whether you are supporter or not, I hope you can enjoy it at least for 24 hours. And she will join us a week from today on the 23rd for the inaugural uh, Ask the Mayor with the new mayor of Boston. We're really looking forward to it.
2: Okay, coming up, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Farah Stockman is here to discuss her new book, American Made. Boy, it is one of the best books I've it read in a long time. She really did a great job. We're going to talk to her about her premise, what this is about. Farrah Stockman is next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're about to talk to the author of a book by the name of American Made, What Happens to People When Work Disappears. Marjorie and I were speaking on the phone last night. What did you say about the book, Marjorie, when we spoke, when you returned from Brooklyn to Brookline?
2: Well, I'm going to be sucking up here to fast. No, go right ahead. Big time. But, you know, it, it was a brilliantly reported, great book. And for those of us who live in in Boston in our little bubble Mm -hmm. and who were lucky enough, like you talked about, to go to four-year colleges and stuff like that. Um, Seeing the perspective of other people who didn't, and their humanity was really was really uh, Cracker Barrel versus the uh, or whatever you called it that blue beard restaurant or whatever. I so
1: you really liked <laughs> it, as the bottom line. Farrah Stockman is a member of the New York Times editorial board, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. Most importantly to us, a former member of the Boston Globe staff. Farah, congratulations on a wonderful piece of work, and welcome.
16: Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well,
2: how was that? I thought that would get you in the, in the right mood for the interview <laughs> <you> here,
16: Shannon. <laughs>
1: It was actually more <laughs> no. exuberant than that, Farrah, trust yeah. me. You didn't hear her. She was incredible.
2: So far t- feel free, keep it coming. <laughs> no, it was it was terrific. And I don't know how you did it with a little kid and a full time job and all that. It was very impressive. But um, anyway, you told the story of three different characters uh, through the closing of their factory. So tell us about you know, these three people, who they were and the factory that they were at.
16: Yeah, so I started reporting this book pretty much on election night of 2016 when I was trying to make sense of how so many millions of Americans had cast a ballot for a man who had never served even one day in government. How could that be? And I'm from Michigan. I grew up in Michigan, so I started asking around there and people kept telling me he's going to save our factories. Donald Trump is going to save my plant and bring the factories back. So I decided to follow, um, steel at a plant in Indianapolis that was moving to Monterey, Mexico. It was a plant that Trump had tweeted about. And I ended up following a white woman named Shannon Mulcahy, who had basically been, a uh, in an abusive relationship and she was able to get out of it because of this job and she worked her way up from being a janitor to essentially being one of the highest paid uh people on the factory floor she was a heat treat operator and she operated these dangerous furnaces and she felt she got a lot of pride out of that um i also followed wally a black man who was a bearing assembler and he dreamed of opening a barbecue restaurant. And so I decided to follow him when he was like the only person I I met at the plant who had a plan for what was going to happen after it closed. And he said, I met him at this union rally where he gave this fiery speech. But afterwards, he was in a good mood and very optimistic. And he said, I'm going to start a barbecue. So I was like, I definitely want to see if he does it. Um And then I also followed, the last person I followed was named John. He was this diehard union guy. He was the vice president of the union. This had been his second plant closing. And I definitely wanted to know, you know, how he ended up at the
1: end of that. By the way, when you read this book, you feel, I am sure, did you not feel like you knew Shannon, John, and Wally, and you had been there too? Yeah, drawn in. So you mentioned, we've had this discussion about a million times on the show, most recently with Fiona Hall, actually, with her book about Mm. how Trump really got it. Trump understood what the the populist angst was across this country how did john and shannon and wally feel about trump early on and how did they feel about him down the line
17: yeah
16: um so in the beginning shannon shannon was the one i followed most closely in the beginning and she did not vote she 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 didn't vote but everyone around her was supporting trump including her father who had who had taken a certain amount of pride in never having cast a ballot in his whole life and yet he was sucked into trump trump brought a lot of people out of the woodwork who had been sort of totally turned off by politics totally um, felt like they're all crooks. I heard that so many times by so many people, whether they were Republicans or Democrats, white, black, men, women, they all said politicians are crooks. And so their, their bar was pretty low to begin with. Um, but they, you know, Shannon felt like when Trump tweeted about that plant moving to Mexico, he she she actually felt like the president-elect of the United States cared about her personally and was communicating with her personally. And, um, so she, you know, she was really hopeful when he took office. Um, uh, John, the diehard union guy had been, uh, a Democrat all his life. These were, you know, he was the grandson of coal miners and he had been told like, you know, the Democrats are, are for the little man and the Republicans are for the greedy corporations. But by the time, you know, he grew up and and Bill Clinton uh, entered into NAFTA, which was the first free trade agreement with a low wage country. And then a few years later, um, uh, let China into the WTO. That's when John started to see factories closing and his own plant closed twice. He went through two plant closings. And so by the end, he was kind of like, I'm no longer a Democrat. And no one was speaking his language. He didn't vote for Mitt Romney. He wasn't excited about Mitt Romney, the, the very kind of guy who's sending jobs away. But when Trump started talking, he, he, was in, he was interested in Trump because Trump was saying the exact kind of stuff that these steelworks have been saying for years and the kind of stuff about globalization yeah. and free trade that Democrats used to say. And how about Wally, black guy? <laughs> So Wally and I did not find a single black worker that supported Trump. And, and to me, this was like, it was like, okay, if these, if about, if these white workers were attracted to Trump because of free trade and globalization, why didn't their black coworkers and friends uh, see it the same way? And they really didn't. Nobody did. Wally couldn't even stand the sound of, of uh, Trump's voice. And and so, you know, it was a really interesting thing to watch. Um, I should say that by the end of four years, I don't know if we're doing a like a spoiler alert here, but... but Go right ahead. Go right ahead. By the end of four years, it was really COVID that changed Shannon's mind. Like I could, I came to see Shannon and Wally and John as kind of these bellwethers of American public opinion much more than my own friends because they you know if they were angry at trump for something i knew he would backtrack like a, you know a few weeks it would only take a couple of weeks before he had to backtrack on a policy if shannon was angry at, about a policy let's say migrant kids in cages at the border i w- i knew he would have to come out and and uh and 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 take it back um but in january and february of 2020 she was she was still uh, you know, the economy was going well. She w- She had found another job. Even her son had found another job. Oops. Oh, my
2: goodness. We froze, but Shannon we'll is... get it
1: fixed. And that wouldn't be Shannon. No, be... but
2: Shannon's Farrah. story. Oh, Shannon. yeah. We'll get it in a second. We'll get it in a second. John, John
1: Parker will fix it as he fixes everything. The Zoom uh, froze. We'll get uh, Ferris Stockman back in a minute. We'll the name of the book, second. and I feel the same way, Margie, it is brilliant. It's called American Made. What Happens to People When Work... Disappears.
2: Well, you know what I took away from this, and we'll get Farrah to comment on this in just a second, but that people like you and me really don't understand the people in the Rust Belt at all and and understand. I mean, we have emailers all the time that are really upset about things. Like the gentleman who came, emailed before, was upset that I, or he called before and was always, Farrah's gone. Well, let John worry about it. Was upset that um, I had called uh, the mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu, tiny. You know, John in this book, this guy that's been through two, he's a big union leader, been through two factory closing, Mm -hmm. he can't stand the word white privilege because in his estimation, Mm -hmm. what he says, what, you know, what are people talking about? You know, I have been at the edge of disaster for my entire life, you know, losing everything, losing my home, losing these things. He doesn't like that kind of thing. And we assume right away that people who don't like that term, what, what do we think? I'm asking you.
1: You're asking me? Yeah. That they're racist.
2: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, and and I thought she had a great, I, I mentioned this in the opening, that she had this great discussion where she wanted to go to There was some new restaurant in Indianapolis. Oh, called, save that
1: for her. That, okay. That, that, that's, you know okay. what the other thing, by the way, is Farah talks about in her book how she brings... That she's a biracial woman, but she talks about her parents were tenured professors at universities. She was a Harvard kid. Mm -hmm. So that she was a a different kind of person entering this plant and the the world of these workers that were about to lose their jobs. You know, in a minute, the part of the book that I will never forget, I'm going to broach with Farah as soon as I get her back, is when these workers were asked to train the people right. who are going to take their jobs. I mean, oh, Farrah is back uh, this time on the, uh, Farrah, on the phone.
2: Okay, while you were gone, Farrah, I'm, I said that you, um, that John uh, Feltner, the guy that had gone through two plant closings, had said he he didn't like he, the, the term white privilege really get under his skin. No, no pun intended. Maybe there is a pun intended. He was a white guy. And I use that as an example of how people like me and maybe Jim don't get these – a John uh, Feltner kind of person at all. So what was it that got him about white privilege?
16: Yeah, so this was one of the most fascinating things to me. Um, John had been um, the descendant of coal miners, right? So he came from this labor history where they were like, nobody gave us a middle class life because we were white. Um, We fought for those things. Right, We died in in little wars with the coal company in Kentucky um, in order to get a day off work, an eight-hour workday, enough money to feed our families. And so to him, the term white privilege really made it seem like all white people had the same kind of privilege, yeah. made it seem like he had as much privilege as the white CEO who was sending all their jobs away. And, um, you know, so he he was basically saying, why can't we in the labor movement stand together uh, shoulder to shoulder and fight for our jobs, black and white men and women? We're all here in this plant. Why can't we fight together for our jobs? And why does it have to be about race? Um, and so it was a really, um, you know, when the, when the plant closed, you could see a lot of um divisions over race a lot he john went through the plant trying to get everybody to agree not to train their mexican replacement and a lot of the white uh, a lot of the uh black uh workers thought that was racist so it was it was um it was really just an eye it was like a little microcosm of american politics right there and what was going on in the country.
2: And, you know, I also thought, by contrast, Wally, uh, the black guy, you talked about how he grew up in a middle-class home and his father was always telling him to keep away from the bad kids in the neighborhood. And, of course, he's he, he had a huge personality, very charismatic. People really liked him. This reminded me of a of the, the documentary about This Ain't Normal that we just watched a couple of weeks ago. I was talking about gang leaders and drug dealers in Boston, how they are also, many of them, very charismatic, uh, very smart uh, big personality kind of guys because they're the leaders of their neighborhood and Wally did time when he got caught uh, with his drug dealing
16: yeah I mean imagine what happens when every single young man who has ambition and an entrepreneurial spirit when their only place that is the term is the drug is the drug, drug industry yeah right? That's that he was making more money than his dad at the age of 15. And, you know, it's just hard to, you know, getting to know Wally really opened my eyes to how, um, you know, just how um, what happens to a, a neighborhood when those ambitious boys have one place to go.
1: We're talking to Ferris Stockman. The book is American Made, What Happens to People When Work Disappears. You know, you touched a second ago on what you know from our prior conversation was the part of the book that I'll never forget. the uh, These workers losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods, being told to train the people who were taking their jobs. Could you describe Shannon's relationship with the 20-something uh, person right. who uh, was taking hers or who she was training?
16: She was training, right. So she really agonized over whether she should train because, you know, um, the people who did train were ostracized and, and, you know, shunned essentially. But um, she decided she had to do it because she needed the bonus uh, that came with it. And um, so she um, signed signed up to train. And this, this young guy was basically the same age as her son. And Shannon kind of. She remembered how hard it was for her to be trained because when she was a woman learning how to operate these furnaces, the guys who were training her didn't want her to to learn and tried to get her fired and played all kinds of tricks on her to scare her away from the job. So she actually took a lot of, um, she took took pity or she she empathized with this young guy and ended up um really becoming a friend and at the end of it he tries to apologize He like takes her aside and puts his hand on his heart and she says like you know i hate to see this job go i was blessed to have this job but now it's your turn to be oh, blessed god. and oh. she really, really oh my it. god
17: yeah, um, I, they've been—they've—they've been, they've
16: remained in touch. By the way, oh, they I love—I wow. love this
2: woman, Shannon Mulcahy. I loved her for a whole bunch of reasons, because <laughs> the fact she was the only woman, she just suffered all that discrimination then early in her career, and also, I mean, you illustrate through her life the point that if you don't. You know, the old Ruth Bader Ginsburg learned it wasn't about reproductive freedom in your case, but, you know, if there's no if there's no economic freedom without reproductive freedom, Shannon Mulcahy, she had no life freedom without economic freedom because she could not, as you mentioned before, get out of this abusive relationship with this guy, Dan. Tell us about that.
16: Yeah, I mean her the difference between rich and poor was like, c- could you afford to leave a bad man? Yeah. If you couldn't afford to leave a bad man, then you were poor. If you could afford to leave him, then you were you were rich enough, right? <laughs> so, and she had gone through this with her own mom. Her mom. Uh, she had been. Uh, her mom got married to a truck driver who took them to the suburbs. And Shannon thought, okay, now I'm out of the trailer park. I'm in the suburbs. And then he starts molesting her. The stepfather.
9: Yeah.
16: When the mother finds out about it, her mother's like, okay, honey, let me just just give me some time to get enough money to leave. Yeah. And you know, sort of see how constrained people's choices are if they don't have. Uh, enough uh, of e- economic independence to 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 strike out on their own. So it was really, um, yeah, it was really eye opening to hear her life and how many obstacles she had overcome to, and, to get to where she was.
2: While I'm on this theme about how much people like me don't understand people like Shannon and Wally and, and John, tell us the story about the Bluebird versus the Cracker Barrel restaurant
8: we <laughs> <you> talked
16: about. <laughs> well. So I, I, Indianapolis, um, it has a part to it that's sort of just like Boston or Cambridge. It has this this part to it where there's working spaces and craft, you know, craft beer breweries and restaurants. And so when I discovered this little neighborhood and, and a lot of tech workers they are trying to reinvent themselves as a sort of a tech hub. And when I go there, there's there's this great restaurant called Bluebeard. There, and I read reviews of it. It had, you know, Fancy Pants Restaurant. And of course, I'm on an expense account with the New York Times, so I'm like, exactly. Hey. <laughs> I'm like, damn it, let me
10: take yeah. you here. Let
16: me take you here. And um, she wasn't interested. And none of the steelworkers that I was. Um, interviewing wanted to go to that restaurant they all wanted to go to Cracker Barrel or to Olive Garden yeah if the, you know uh, or if they were really uh, fancy schmancy cheesecake factory but like
17: <laughs> no one yeah. was remotely
16: interested in Bluebeard and when I you know the more I thought about it the more I realized you know the better I got to know them really The better I I understood how much they would have hated that restaurant. Its portions would have seemed tiny. Its prices would have seemed outrageous, and they wouldn't have even liked the (laughs) food. And like, what brings me to this like realization that class is also about taste. It's about culture. It's about what you like to eat, what you like to do. And you know, they were hunt. A lot of them were hunters. They were in their forties. They were all grandparents in their forties, and I was here, I had my first child at 42, right? Wow! So like, there are vast cultural differences between us uh, that we don't really acknowledge, because we're Americans, right? And class doesn't exist here in America, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, Um, right. You know, all of them either smoked or chewed tobacco. Um, There were so many little differences, they would all try to to um, fix something before they called a plumber or an electrician. They would all get on YouTube and and look at, how, like, maybe could they fix it themselves. And, and the number of things that they were trying to fix on YouTube was pretty incredible. <laughs> um, my friend's mom told me once, you could probably learn how to do brain surgery on YouTube. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's notion that, that uh, it's a very can-do spirit But, uh, you know, there's uh, there's also a lot of uh, a lot of unhealthy stuff like the like the tobacco use. And and um, and there was there were a lot of there, you know, this these were the same families that were also getting hit by opioid crisis. Right.
1: You know, Farah Stockman, Marjorie said a couple of times in this discussion and also one time when you were uh, we were getting switching lines with you about how people like Marjorie and I don't have experience with people living lives like this, you don't shy away from the fact that you didn't either. You write, my parents never worked in factories. They went to college on scholarships and loans, became tenured professors. I grew up a faculty, Brett, in a college down in Michigan. Before I started, and you went to Harvard, obviously, before I started researching this book, nearly every person I interacted with on a daily basis had a bachelor's degree, on and on. So what did you learn? What's the major thing you learned from this experience farah stockman i don't mean about the individuals but i mean sort of takeaway kind of things
16: there is a vast disconnect
1: um
16: between
1: people who have four-year
16: college degrees particularly from um uh well-known colleges and people who don't and guess what we're a minority Mm. we're a tiny minority so if we were a tribe We would control pretty much every decision of any consequence in this country. We would control Congress. We would control, you know, the the Supreme Court, every trade delegation, every editorial board, every president since 1953. And yet people with college degrees are only a third of American adults. Two thirds of American adults do not have a four-year degree. And so like to me that was one of the most shocking figures. And so we look at politics, why is it broken? Why don't they believe us when we say things on TV? But like, like we're not representing their reality. And we we don't even necessarily understand how their how their lives work, what their what the economics of their life is, whether it makes sense for someone to go to college or not. Um there's a lot of um public policy decisions that I think uh, we might make differently if if we understood the mechanics of 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 their lives better. Do you think? Um, so do you me, think?
1: Yeah. Do you think Joe Biden under Joe Biden from Scranton underli- understands their lives better? Recent polls would suggest that he does not.
16: Well, yeah, I think he's. Uh, I think he has a better shot at it than most politicians in Washington. Uh, I do. And I'm I'm hoping those poll, poll numbers come up. And when he when he gets when he talks about the infrastructure package, he talks about jobs. He, he, you know, he'll talk about jobs, jobs, jobs. Not every Democrat does. They talk about social safety nets. And I really think that um, the Democratic Party has to get away from just talking about safety nets because to the working class, work is important. Jobs are really important. Yeah. And, the, the difference between them and like, you know, some lazy relative who is gaming the system, you know, they know the lazy people are gaming the system. They know that they're they in their own families, right? And so it's demoralizing to get up and go to work every day when you know your your brother or your nephew or your uncle or whatever is not going to work and is just gaming, you know, living off a, a, a disability check or a COVID check or something that you don't feel like they deserve. I, I, I don't know. I think that that we need to return to talking about work and and supporting work, and that's what social and safety nets are. I'm not saying there aren't some people who can't work, but most people want to work. They want to feel needed, and I think we forget that sometimes.
2: Well, you know, I think one of the not to give away too much, but um, when one of these people does get kind of rescued, and uh, with with their mortgage and so forth, uh, a, a, a deep depression ensues. <laughs> so. So, yeah. the yeah. financial uh, benefit wasn't necessarily a, a benefit.
1: Which shows that work is not just about the paycheck. Yeah, which is, exactly. Yeah,
16: right. We, we forget about this in twenty twenty. In addition to all the people we lost from COVID, we lost ninety thousand people to opioid overdoses, yeah. and that it was a thirty percent increase over the year before. So it's like it shows that when people have nothing to do. <laughs> That you know, it's not healthy. It's not. It's like they called it the Great Depression for a reason, right? Like you get depressed
17: when you don't have a
16: job. And when everyone around you doesn't have a job. If you look at any community that's experienced uh unemployment shock, you will see depression, drug use, suicide. I mean, it's not a healthy it's not a healthy community. Um I, I will I will say that there's even um you can see this worldwide. There was a study in the UK about Workers who had lost their jobs versus workers who'd had their hours dramatically cut. Yep. And people who had hours dramatically cut were pretty much fine. Um, those who lost their jobs had, you know, high rates of anxiety and depression. So, like, work is important, even, even if it's a small amount of work.
2: Hey Farah, congratulations again. I, I, I really um, I learned so much about uh, Shannon and John and Wally and about their perspective that was really helpful to me, I'll say that. And thank you for uh, being with us. I appreciate it.
1: Great to talk to you, Farrah.
16: Thank you both for having me on.
2: Okay. Talk soon. Farah Fawcett is a member of the Farah York- Fawcett? Farah Fawcett. Farrah Stockman. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh Farrah, you, God, still You're still <laughs> you still here? You still
10: here? You still here? Do you hear me call you Farrah Fawcett? That's terrible. I, I'm, 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 I'm saying my high school teacher used to call me that. <laughs> um, Farrah Fawcett's a gift. That was okay. my
17: nickname. Um, okay. Thank <laughs> you, you say? for having me on. Thank, thank you. you. It's not
2: Farrah Fawcett. Farrah Stockman is wow. a member of the... New- I know, I tell you, Jim, are on losing it, losing it. Farrah Stockman is a member of the New York Times editorial board, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. Latest book, and I'm not just blowing smoke, it is really terrific. It's like a movie, it keeps you going from page to page. It's American Made What Happens to People When Work Disappears. Coming up, CNN's John King discusses a key member of Trump's inner circle, reveling in the spotlight of his own indictment that is next on Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Marjorie and Jim Brady. Steve Bannon has turned himself in over contempt of court charges after he refused to provide documents. Contempt of Congress, I'm sorry, to Congress's inquiry of January 6th insurrection. But don't mistake his surrender to surrender. CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, John King, is on the line to discuss this and more. Hello, John King. Hello. Happy Tuesday. And hey, to you. to
2: you too, John King. So, our our own David Paleologus, a great pollster here from Boston, he does uh, this is a USA Today, Suffolk University poll that he did, said something really upsetting to me. Um, that only one in four Americans think that the second part of of this big new bill, the bill better back, the thing that we can't get through yet, the one that's going to do universal child care, the child tax credits, those sorts of things, only one in four Americans say the bill's provisions would help them and their families, which I find astonishing because most of us, Oh, nearly all of us are going to get old, and we're going to want to have better health care workers taking care of us and our elderly, you know, problems and stuff. So I know Biden is out selling his, his proposals, but people mustn't know at all what's in this bill.
5: I think that's a giant challenge for the president right now, even more so. It's a challenge anyway, even more so because his own numbers and his party's numbers heading into the midterms are down right now. Uh, Look, uh, Marjorie, you know, not everybody follows the news as closely as we do. Uh, You know, we get paid to do it. Um, People are busy. They're stressed. There's a lot of coronavirus stress out there, whether it's about your job or about getting your kids to school or about your community. Uh, And so people aren't as tuned into Washington as you might think that we would want them to be. And Democrats have done a lousy job because the fight has been largely about how much to spend and, much, and not as much about you know what to spend it on. And so I do think that's a huge challenge for the president. He's going to be nearby you. He's been up in Grafton, New Hampshire, uh, a little yep. bit later today to focus on the infrastructure part uh, to make the case. And, look, we've got to give the president his due on this one. How many people said they'd never get a big bipartisan bill, right, that big and bipartisan could never be in the same sentence right. again? Um, and he got it. Uh, and so Biden was right about this, and the critics were wrong. Uh, the question is, can Biden be right about A, passing the rest of his agenda, and B, um, convincing people that this actually will change your life. This is not just a bunch of politicians jacking and spending money. It's a bunch of politicians trying to do things that will make your life better. Uh, It's a giant communications challenge for the president and his party, um, and he hopes to begin that, the building blocks of that. He hopes is going to be that by spring you see shovels in the ground and roads and bridges being repaired, and you say, oh, Washington actually did something useful for change.
1: Well, let me then bring up something else that real people don't care about. When I'm watching the ceremony while we're on the air yesterday, and I was saying to Marjorie earlier, I think on the show I said this as opposed to before, it was nice to see actually a Republican at a Democratic president's uh, a press event. Uh, I saw Rob Portman, the senator from Ohio. I read into the fact that Kristen Cinema got a speaking part, the fact that the price for getting a speaking part was at least quiet acknowledgement that you're going to vote for this second piece of legislation am i uh making a leap that doesn't uh that isn't merited
5: no i think you're close I, i think that you know they don't because they don't have the final language worked out yet and the house is going to go first And i do think there will be some things potentially changed in the senate uh that i don't think it's a guarantee yet but the white house feels jim so much better now about cinema than they did when we were having this conversation, you know, last week and a week before that, and we, we've been having this conversation for months. Uh, and in part because they was trying to get cinema to the finish line, uh, they think they have her, you know, pending what the final bill looks like. But they feel much better about her, and they they still have a bit of a Joe Manchin problem. And you know, the question we ask every day, if not every hour in Washington, is how much of what Joe Manchin is saying is, you know, he wants attention and he wants to be the the player at the end, and how much of it is substantive. His biggest thing now is. He says, you know, with all this inflation out there, do you want to put, you know, another trillion dollars of spending into the economy or is that, is that inflationary? Uh, the White House is pretty confident they get him at the end, too, but they may have to make a couple more changes.
1: And do they wait until the uh, Build Back Better thing, which a term I can't stand. I, don't, I just don't think it does anything for the product. But in any case, that's what it's called. Do they wait on voting rights until that's either completed or completely fallen apart? Is that what the game plan is?
5: Yes, um, in, a, in a word, yes. In the sense that the Democrats say that they're going to. Uh, the House is supposed to vote uh, Friday. It'll probably be Michael is either late into the night Friday or Saturday to vote on Build Back Better, the Social Safety Net. Yep. You know, call it what you want. Uh, and then it goes over to the Senate. And again, if the House, as expected, leaves in uh, four weeks of paid leave, Manchin has said he's not for that. Uh, so then um, Schumer says the Senate will get to this and be finished with this by Christmas. Um, he hopes sooner, but by Christmas. So we're in, you know, we're in welcome to the holidays, um, you know, uh, but, you know, they get paid to work for a living, too. And so they're going to have to, you know, the question is, you know, how, how long are they here? But this will be the last substantive session before the, we head and turn the calendar to the election year. And so it's the question of can you pass the rest of the Biden agenda? Can you raise the debt ceiling, you know, fund the government to keep it open? And then, you know, yes, there are Democrats who would like to revisit voting rights and some other issues. I, I would be quite skeptical, Jim. They're going to be able to pull that off.
1: Talking to John King from CNN. So
2: another more depressing news, if you are a Democrat, uh, that the Republicans, as usual, have done a spectacular job in gerrymandering. Uh, how does this look for 2022?
5: Well, if you just look right now, hey, if you look at the polling right now, and again, the election's a long ways off. It's 51 weeks away. Uh, so a year is a you know, it's cliche, but a year is an eternity in politics. But the Democrats are in a rut right now because history says the party in power usually gets punished in the first midterm election. Uh, the president's poll numbers are underwater right now, meaning his disapproval is higher than approval. And the Washington Post ABC poll the other day gave Republicans a 10 point lead in the so called generic ballot question. You know, if the election were tomorrow and you were voting for Congress, would you vote for a Democrat or a Republican? Republicans almost never lead in that poll, they're up 10 points. If the Republicans were down two points in that poll, I would tell you the Republicans are going to win. You know 15 or 20 seats and take back the house because of the way house districts are drawn so with the combination of the current political environment plus their redistricting advantages it, it, the safest bet today is that republicans will take back the house and they will take it back actually fairly convincingly again the democrats have a year to change this but but set all that aside marjorie based on the redistricting so far if every seat State exactly where it is right now, meaning Democrats won every seat now held by a Democrat. Republicans won every seat now held by a Republican. Republicans would take control of the House simply through redistricting uh, because of the seats that are moving, because of the seats that are moving and the Republican control of the process in most of those states. Uh, So you're adding, you know, a couple seats in Texas. You're redrawing the lines here. Um, Republicans would take a narrow advantage in the House just through redistricting alone, even if nothing else changed hands. And so there's an enormous Republican advantage as we head into this re- the midterm year.
1: And by the way, the gerrymandering, the piece in The New York Times in this said what I think is pretty obvious, which is not only does skillful, extreme political gerrymandering, which the Supreme Court said is OK uh, um, a couple of years ago, not only does it make races less competitive, but it causes the candidates in those gerrymandered districts to take more extreme positions to appeal to their base, so it means even fuller, further par- polarization in Congress.
5: I think uh, you make a great point, and not just in Congress. You're going to see this in state legislative races as well, the next generation, if you will, uh, of politicians, uh, because they're redrawing those lines too. So you're running for the state legislature yeah. in a lot of these places. Uh, and the lines generally overlap. You know, they're small. sometimes they're smaller districts for state houses as opposed to for Congress. Uh, but, you're yes, you're running in these new lines. The districts are drawn for partisan advantage, which is so that, you know, to, you got to win the primary to win the general until so you go further to the extreme to win the primary. Uh, it's a cancer in American politics. Uh, I believe that with all my heart.
1: So, John, why does anybody run for re-election in this Congress? I mean, we saw another congresswoman, I think her last name is pronounced Spear from California, announced she's not running for re-election. Patrick Leahy, uh, obviously from Vermont, announced at 81 he was not running for re-election. I can't imagine, and I mean this sincerely, in theory, a more important job that has to be more horrifying to go to every single day. Why does the average person with whom you talk want to do this?
5: It's a mix. Uh, it's it's a mix of the reaction. Some people, you know, love public service and they love the legislating, uh, even if it can be uh, even if they're incredibly annoying and divisive and polarizing parts of it right now. I mean, you should be all over the course of the next year, you know, calling Congressman Presley, for example, Uh, calling Congressman McGovern from the Worcester area. Um, Jim McGovern is a great example of someone who is a, you know, all in progressive Democrat. Not my job to take sides. That's just who he is. All in progressive Democrat, wants to cure hunger, Uh, you know, wants to reach out around the world and and deal with uh, global problems. And he's strong on, you know, peace and democracy, Um, frustrated incredibly. Uh, by the Republican Party of today. Uh, the chairman of the House Rules Committee right now, likely to be in the minority next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the minority, forgive my language, the minority sucks. Be- being in the minority in Congress, especially in these polarized times, uh, is horrible because mm-hmm. the Republicans already say, if we take power, we're going to be recriminations, right? We're going to go after the Democrats. Well, But some of them do it because they genuinely believe in public service and they're willing to take the beating, if you will, the pinata part of it, to do the good part of it. Uh, I do think, you know, Senator Leahy retiring, that's a huge generational thing for the state of Vermont. Yeah. Um, Jackie Speier um, became very well-known during the impeachment investigations, the Mueller report on the House side. She's a key ally of Nancy Pelosi. So it's not unusual heading into the midterm year that also is a redistricting year. A lot of members just simply say, you know, if it's about if it's about time to go, it might as well be time to go.
2: So you guys, uh, well, by the way, we're talking with John King from CNN. You both, uh, Jim and John, were mentioning extremes and political positions before. So I guess maybe that means I shouldn't be surprised uh, when uh, Kevin McCarthy, who leads the Republicans in the House, defended uh, Paul Gosar from Alabama, the representative that tweeted a Photoshop meme basically saying, you know, killing uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, I, I guess that's what that's what we're in for more of. Especially if the Republicans do do really well. I mean, I know we're, we're not in twenty twenty two yet, but it looks like we're headed that way. Is that? Does anybody think that's
5: Kevin surprising? McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, uh, uh, sadly, it's not surprising because Kevin McCarthy is so determined to be Speaker and he needs the Trumpy um, agitators, provocateurs, and I'm using kind words, uh, in the Republic, House Republican family. He needs their votes uh, because there are enough of them to deny him the speakership. Um, that So here's what they met today, and there was more anger at the 13 Republicans who voted for the Biden infrastructure package, the bipartisan yeah. infrastructure package. House Republicans are more mad at them than they are at Paul Gosar, who posted a video in which, you know, it's a cartoon character, so he can say it's fake. Uh, I don't care. It's, it's just unacceptable. Again, we talked about this last week. You and I would be fired if we did this in our workplace. Right. Uh, posted a cartoon video with his face, his actual face, superimposed killing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and then turning on the president of the United States. Uh, Republicans are more mad at lawmakers who voted for an infrastructure bill that would create jobs and fix roads and bridges in their districts than they are at a colleague who posted an abhorrently reckless, reprehensible, violent video. That tells you everything you need to know about the Republican Party. And yet, you know, again, if the polls are to be believed and the dynamics of the country are to be believed, uh, they're going to have significant power uh, come a year from January.
1: We're talking to uh, John King. You know, uh, John, we were uh, among the chorus of people who've been critical of Merrick Garland for... Acting so slowly, well, I guess it's until yesterday, a couple days ago, we were saying acting not at all on whether it's an investigation of Donald Trump, like people like Larry Tribe think should be happening and may be happening. We don't know if it's a grand jury or the failure to follow up on uh, the referral of Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress. Obviously, he did follow up. Here's the sound of Bannon yesterday outside the D.C. courthouse when he surrendered. And I want to ask you about it in a minute.
4: I'm telling you right now. This is going to be the misdemeanor from hell for Merrick Garland, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. They, By the way, by the way, by the way, you should understand Nancy Pelosi took is taking on Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. She ought to ask Hillary Clinton how that turned out for them. OK, we're going on the offense. This is going
1: to be a rallying campaign, I assume. It's almost like I got the sense that Bannon was happy that he was charged and forced to go to that federal courthouse because it's. Yet another, uh, uh, I guess, face of the Trump resistance. No,
5: he's going to fundraise off this, and he's going to make himself a martyr off this. Um, he talks about. Uh, he still says on his war room that Trump is a legitimate president, and that we're going to take down the Biden regime. Uh, this is dangerous stuff, Jim. If this were a TV show and it were, you know, a sitcom, uh, we might find yeah. it funny. Uh, but again, anyway, but especially after January sixth. You know, people with platforms need to be careful about what they say, extra careful about what they say, but he's all in. He is all in. You know, he keeps, he says, we're going to stay on offense. Everybody stay on message. Uh, They're not going to get away with this. Um, you know, stand by. That's the language Trump used for the Proud sure. Boys. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing. And a lot of people out there are saying, you know, there goes somebody in the liberal media again. Uh, you know, that's not me. You, um, I don't talk about my politics, but that's not me. I think we need a competitive two-party or, th- or three, three or four parties, be my guess. But we at, need at least two competitive political parties in this country so that nobody gets lazy. Competition is a great thing uh, in any dynamic, especially in politics. But this takeover of the Republican Party by people who lie, people who encourage violence, people who say Trump is still president, and they have a platform and they raise money, um, yeah, it's dangerous. Now, I would just, to, to close the thought, though, Steve Bannon may be willing to go to jail for 30, 60, or 90 days to be a martyr. Uh, I don't know if Mark Meadows wants to go to jail. I don't know if you know Jason Miller, the former Trump spokesman, wants to go to jail. I, I don't know if Kaylee McEnany wants to go to jail. So I do think the on the accountability question is other people, other people who have defied subpoenas come before the committee. Uh, We're going to we're going to test this, I think, a little bit more. But but the Republican strategy, the Bannon strategy and the Trump strategy is run out the clock, drag this into the middle of next year. And then you just watch when Republicans say, here's another witch hunt Democrats are pursuing, even though there are a couple of Republicans on the committee uh, to to mask Joe Biden's inflation. They're going to try to make this all political.
2: You know, we were just talking to uh, Farrah Stockman, who's who's re- wrote this uh, terrific book called "American uh, Made: What Happens to People When Work Disappears," and she was arguing in this book that people like herself, or people like me, and Jim, or people that went to four-year colleges, or people that, you know, have grown up in the middle class, just have no understanding of of the dynamics that have propelled so many millions of people to to uh, vote for Donald Trump. And you wonder in the context of this discussion about Steve Bannon or about the uh, let's kill uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez kind of stuff, whether we're all just, um, you know, we're outraged and 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 the chunk of people that she talked to for her book, it's kind of like a big who cares. I mean, did you ever think about that? We just missed the whole I, thing uh, here.
5: <laughs> I agree a thousand percent with Sarah's point. I agree a thousand percent. That whatever I'm not saying that, you know, Jim and Marjorie or John need to change their views or their passion. I'm saying we need to listen to these people and respect where they're coming from, Uh, because, you know, look, I grew up in Dorchester. You know, I was on food stamps for a little while as a kid. My family's a very blue collar family. I'm the luckiest guy on planet Earth. I have lived the American dream. Uh, But there are a lot of people who still work with their hands, uh, who work in places that are being changed by globalization, who do not think the politicians give a damn about them. Trump tapped into that somehow, cynically, perhaps recklessly, perhaps. But there are, there are a huge, 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 huge pool of disaffected Americans who are open to listening to these arguments because they, no one else has helped them. So why should they listen to the Democrats or the traditional establishment Republicans? Because they have ignored me while my factory has disappeared or while they, you know, my job has gone overseas. Uh, we, and so we need to listen to these people. Even if we disagree with everything they're saying, we need to come to a better respect and understanding of where it's coming from because you're not going to change it until you understand it. Uh, and so, they are, yes, they're more susceptible to COVID myths. They're more susceptible to the big lie that Trump won the election. Uh, but they're also our neighbors. Uh, they're fellow Americans. And we need to find a way to listen and to talk to them or we are screwed. Uh, I, I mean that 100 percent because they're, they're out there and they're voting uh, and they think they have good reason to vote the way they're voting. So we may think that's nuts. But if we don't understand and respect them, we're never going to get out of this.
1: Couldn't agree with you more. John King, as always, we really appreciate your time. Be well.
5: Take care,
1: guys. Thank you. Thank you.
2: John, thank you again. Um, John King is CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics Monday through Friday at noon on CNN. Thanks again to John. Coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about the historic moment today. We have Mir... Michelle Wu was sworn in earlier today as the mayor of the city of Boston. If you're from Boston or you're from outside of Boston, we're wondering what you think. 877 301 8970 BPR at WGBH.org is the email, or you can tweet us at Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're going to spend the last few minutes of today's show talking about the swearing in of Michelle Wu as the mayor of Boston. Happened at about 1245 today. It was a fairly brief ceremony. I think the whole thing took about 45 minutes. She is the mayor of Boston. I guess the more elaborate ceremony will be in January, which would be the normal swearing in time were it not for the fact that there was an unelected interim Mayor Kim Janey, that's also the time when the city council, uh, electi- the elected members of the city council, the new members and those who are reelected, will be sworn in. We want to know what your reaction is to the ascension of Michelle Wu to be mayor of the city. If you live here, as Marjorie said, we'd love to know who you voted for and what your expectation is. If you don't live in Boston, but since all of us spend a significant chunk of our life here, we'd like your perspective uh, as well, Marjorie mentioned earlier the primary debate in the final between Asabi George and Wu, Asabi George's contention, is I worry about your everyday problems. I coined a phrase I didn't even know I was coining earlier in the show. Sort of potholian problems, I guess, <laughs> is how I describe them. As opposed to the uh, – what was the expression you used? Pie in the sky. I don't know yeah. if uh, Asabi George used Idealistic. that expression. But, you know, right, visionary but not, vision. but not real for people in everyday uh, uh, lives. Obviously, Wu's position is, needless to say, and it was pretty convincing that two-thirds of the voters that she can uh, do both. She would like to reinstate some form of what she calls rent stabilization. As you'll probably remember, in 1994, the voters of uh, Massachusetts, I think it was 51 to 49, voted to repeal rent control statewide, even though, I love saying this, the three communities that had rent control voted to keep it, The 348 who didn't have it voted to dump it. She needs uh, legislative support for that. She'd also need legislative support, meaning not legislative city council, but the state legislature and governor. She'd need a Beacon Hill support to free the tea, to make uh, fares free. She can obviously do some, as she explained to us a few weeks ago without state support, but you primarily needs state support. And I'm not really sure how much of the Green New Deal, which I would argue is the third leg of that tripod of things that most people uh, remember from her campaign. I don't know how much of that she can do unilaterally within the city, I think quite a bit, but I'm sure some of it depends upon a legislature uh, going along with it. So we want to know what your impressions are as Michelle Wu begins her first day of work as the first non-white guy, mayor of uh, of Boston eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Let's start with Amy from Cambridge. Amy, thank you for calling. Thanks for calling Amy.
6: Hi there. Um, I'm delighted that Michelle Wu is the new mayor of Boston. I obviously won't be affected by it. But I just want to caution everybody to uh, uh, to stop talking about her as a first woman and the first person of color because I think it puts a burden on her in the same respect that we put a burden on Obama and he became an emblem, which I, I actually don't think helps his presidency. Um, And also I I just don't think it does any good for her as a mayor. I think she just has to go to work.
1: Yeah. But, but Amy, Amy, she didn't shy away from the description. Plus it is historic. I mean, it, I feel almost the exact – well, I don't know if, no, if I feel – don't feel it's a burden, whether it is or not. I almost feel an obligation to mention it because it's never happened before, nor had a black person ever been elected president of the United States. So burden or not, what, what's the alternative to ignore well, history?
6: Well, no, I just I just think that it's such a big deal has been made out of it. And, I mean, one way to look at what happened – Obama, and this, is, this happens to women in the workplace when we started entering the workplace, like in an architecture firm where you're the one person out of 20 mm-hmm. who's female, is that if you don't do what everybody's eyes are on you, and if you fail, if it, or if you don't manage to do something you were yeah. planning on doing, it's a huge failure and it's emblematic of your gender. And so I, I just, I'm just.
1: Cautious about it. That's all. Well, you know, let Um, me let me give you one more response to that. I think one of the ways that Michelle Wu, I don't know this for a fact, but I know it based upon her behavior so far, uh, attempts to deal with it is to make sure she's not the only person in the room. As I mentioned earlier today, every single person who she selected to be part of the program today was a person of color. Uh, Every single person who she announced, I think the three initial cabinet appointments. Two were uh, women of color. All three were women. And so I think that she will not surround herself with uh, uh, people who will cause her to be the only one in the room. And I think maybe that will help change the dynamic that I I understand you're concerned about. But, Amy, thank you for your call. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970.
2: I still can't get over the fact that her speech was less than 10 minutes. (laughs) I mean, you know, Brevity, people no, People go is, on and on and on. Have you going to to the wedding lately? Have you been to any weddings lately? No. You know, the toast is getting out of hand, if you ask me, and people will go on and on and on. You've got 17 toasts going, you're waiting there to eat your salad, and you can't do it because the toasts are going on on. Well, you on. know, let
1: me tell you something. You know, I have to say, you know, Amy was saying we shouldn't say certain things. The fact that you have the courage to talk about the issues that really matter <laughs> about, you know, you can't eat the salad... <laughs> You're never going to get to the appetizer because of the toast. Those are – that we should probably be talking about that. Jim, rather Jim, than Michelle. I, I
2: learned this from you. you know, keep it? it under two minutes. I don't know what you're doing. Keep it under two minutes. You know minutes. what? Did one of my
1: my favorite uh, anecdotes, which sadly did not make it into print. I mentioned this to you. I work with a woman by the name of Azita who's a good friend That's of both right. of ours. When Boston Magazine did a story on you and me three or four or five uh-huh. years ago, Uh, Zita called me and said, I I want to tell you what I just said to the reporter. I hope it's okay." And uh, sadly, again, didn't make it in. And the reporter said, uh, why do you like – do you like working with Jim? Yes, I do. I don't know if she really meant it, but she said it. Uh, Why do you like working with Jim? And without missing a beat, she said, shortest meetings ever. (laughs) And it was one it's of the true. proudest it's commendations true. I've ever no, gotten. No, I think
2: the longest conversation I've ever had with you outside of work lasts about thirty-seven seconds. I don't mean, to say anything. Does that but.
1: upset you? By the no, way,
2: actually, no. I like that no, brevity be short is the coin of the realm. Bridget from Shrewsbury, thank you for calling.
1: Thank you.
18: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, first, I want to say I'm an HLS alum. I graduated a few years before Michelle, and I'm oh. just so excited that she is uh, Great. now our mayor. You got any, you got any um, good stories I, about yeah, you got gossip? No, she,
2: well. didn't she, she didn't say was, she knew he her. Was, okay. Here, she, try.
18: Was, I did actually meet her on the Elizabeth Warren campaign a couple of times, but okay. she was actually, she started HLS after I'd already graduated. Oh, okay. But that's, that's, separate excitement. Um, I wanted to respond to the woman, Amy, that called a few minutes ago. Sure. I'm yep. a black woman, um, person of color, obviously, and uh, a woman. And for me, I, you can't say it enough that this is <laughs> the first woman and woman of color mayor of And it's coming about 350 years late, but it came. And I think that we need to lean into this moment. And that's the future of our city that we're, we've now elected. And, and we need to really continue to celebrate that and and hope that it's the beginning of more to
1: come. Well, Bridget, I agree with you. How much did you – I don't know if you – I'm sure you remember this. The great, great line on election night that Wu said that one of her sons said to her, Oh,
2: yeah. Can, can a miss. man
1: be elected mayor of Boston <laughs> – uh and her great response that after she paused for a second yes they can but not tonight which is yeah. pretty great great well, also, Bridget thanks for the call we remember appreciate
2: Janae Osterhouse column about Kim Janey talking about you know her yeah. her, her, her tenure obviously was very short she didn't uh, uh retain the seat but that it really mattered to a lot of little girls and little girls of color that looked up and of saw course. the mayor could be so I, I do think the first woman does matter So
1: if you were a betting woman which i know you are not mm-hmm. what would you say the odds are that Kim Janey works for Michelle Wu, I would say at least some appointed position, if not formally on the staff, but, you know, the liaison, the something of some issue, Uh, you know, what I really like, uh, you know, you can tell when people have run against each other when the respect is totally phony. And totally a product of political consultants saying you have to be nice to the woman or man you just beat. You do get the sense Sit as there. former – well, current colleagues too, city council colleagues, that they have respect for each other, which I think came out in Kim Janey's remarks today and in uh, Mayor Wu's as well.
2: Scarlett from Medford, thank you for calling. Hello. hello.
17: Hi, um Hi. I would like to comment on the swearing in ceremony today. Um, I – unlike um, other people, I assume – from what I'm hearing was a little bit repulsed by the very opening of the ceremony. It actually um, made my skin crawl.
1: Which part? To,
17: uh, and I'm not sure of the reverend's name. I'm sorry. I, I Arlene
1: Day, that, I think.
17: I, I found that whole spiel to be so, um, uh, so uh, I, I'm just, I was shocked by it. You know, there are a lot of people in this world who don't believe in the blood of Jesus don't believe in the Father, Arlene Hall. I by the
1: woman. way, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I,
17: I am a woman. I don't believe that there is a Father up there overlooking us, and I strongly believe in the separation of church and state. And that whole that whole holy roller thing that opened it turned me off so much. Scarlett, how'd you feel know. about her?
1: How'd you feel about her hand on her Bible when she was taking the oath of office?
17: I, I think that I also feel that is something that I would like to dispense with. And that is something that is a long a long time coming, and yes, we should do that. But Michelle Wu, who is who ran on this platform that she's bringing something like the the, the city of Boston is getting something new, we just got some, some archaic um, behavior from all of those people, which is is it, such a dichotomy. Scarlett, can I tell you something?
1: I am an agnostic, as I've said on the air repeatedly. I would like to see the Bible removed from these ceremonies, too. Do you believe, though, because I sure as hell don't, that what... Uh, The reverend doctor said today and what the swearing in, what she had to say during the swearing in, which had numerous references to God, reflects that she does not believe in the uh, separation of church and state. I have no evidence to the contrary, even if you were offended by the language.
17: The very fact that she's there. Shows that there's no separation of church and state. I hear
1: you. I don't. I respectfully disagree. But I, I have a feeling you're not alone on this. Scarlett, thank you for the call. I appreciate. You it.
17: Know, I'm trying to think of
2: other people. Uh, there's often a, 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 reverend or a priest or a rabbi or a, a iman or something that starts different kind of ceremonies. I'm trying to think if they're more ecumenical. One
1: starts every single day, I believe, in Congress. Yeah. Do they not? I believe yeah. every single I, session I, of Congress. I, I, I'm not, the I'm, House chaplain or the Senate chaplain. Yeah, but
2: I'm not sure how they handle it, so I can't really respond. I mean,
1: I, Scarlett obviously felt really passionately about it. And again, as I say, I assume she's not alone, but I, 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 don't, I guess you could say that may reflect uh, Michelle Wu's view of the world. I don't. Uh, there's nothing I've ever heard from her that suggests that She is not one who embraces the separation of church and state in terms of how she will govern.
2: Cheryl in the car, thanks for calling. Hi, Cheryl. Oh, hi. I just wanted to
19: respond um, because I'm listening to the woman that's upset, and I I also consider myself agnostic, and I think separation between church and state is great. But I loved her uh, little, you know, I guess you'd call it a sermon prior. Because, one, imagine if Michelle Wu didn't have anybody um, from a, a religious point of view, come in, if it's a tradition, you know, what the uproar over that he or she is new and making change. I think it, you know, people would have been mad either way, but I thought it was a wonderful, um, tra- like it demonstrated the tradition of the, like an, um, the African-American preaching, you know, it was very different than we often hear. And it was like very warm and embracing of, I think her and everybody and, I just thought it was wonderful. I, I'm not a regular church person, but I, you know, I understand that we're not there yet with separating that completely out of our politics, and I don't think Michelle Wu could have done it.
1: I sort of feel how you do, Cheryl. I thought she was well, pretty terrific. Cheryl, I, thanks for the I, call. I, I think
2: we've kind of, in many cases, lost separation of church and state when you look at some of the rulings that the, the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court has made that are. Um, co- Talking about religious freedom when what they're really talking about is imposing someone else's religion on people who don't believe it. So I don't know where we are. It's well, you know,
1: other than Church the vaccine mandates, actually, the Supreme Court, I think, with very few exceptions, has said when they're competing rights, the freedom of religion, the First Amendment provision on religion is paramount, takes precedence over virtually all other how rights. it works. No, I understand. I'm not embracing it. I'm just I'm saying, saying what you're right. They
2: use that term, but what they're really doing is imposing someone else's religion I agree that. on people that don't believe it. I mean, look at the birth control thing with the Hobby Lobby thing. Uh, and Rama from Magnolia, thank you for calling. Hey.
4: Hello, Marjorie and Jim. Hey, hey there. Hi. Yeah, so I totally, totally agree with Amy a couple of callers ago. I wish Michelle Wu great, great success. I'm sure she's a wonderful person. She came out on top, so she was the best candidate for sure, for sure. Doesn't matter to me if someone's white, green, red, Martian, whatever. And Martin Luther King said it best. Um, Jim or Marge, you can quote me probably better when we get to the point where we see the person's character rather than the color of the Oh, yeah. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Maybe no. But I think we're getting there. And I think if we drop all this woman of color, man of color, drop it. You know, she's a great candidate. She's a great person through and through. How many of our... Ramah,
1: friends- you know, I always call you, you like the fact when I mispronounce your name. I can't understand it, but you're a sweet guy. Rama, I'll call you today. Why can't we do both? Why can't we celebrate that history was made today? We've never had a woman. We've never had a person of color. At the same time that we say that we hope that the 60 plus percent who voted for Michelle Will in a landslide, voted for her because of the content of her character and the content well, of her agenda. Hold on. Hold Why on. are they mutually exclusive? What?
2: May I just say— if I weren't a woman, I would never get a column at the Herald. I was an affirmative well, action an baby, and, and I got a column, Rama, because they didn't have a woman, and they decided it was about time that they had a woman. So I'm very They made grateful. a
1: pretty good choice, I should say. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for your call. By the way, I want to repeat one more time. The first Ask the Mayor with Michelle Wu is a week from today, noon to one. She'll take your calls, your emails, your tweets, et cetera, as she joins us for the first of what will be monthly Ask the Mayors with the new mayor of Boston, Michelle Ru- Ru- Wu right here. On Boston Public Radio.
2: So thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio 24-7. You can keep up with us if you want to by way of our podcast, which you can get on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Tomorrow, our travel guru Rick Steed is going to be with us along with our national security analyst Juliet Kayyem. We want to thank our crew, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Mackenzie Farkas, Rebecca Tauber, and our engineer, John the Claw Parker, what's on TV, Jim?
1: A couple of things. Sandro Galeo, uh, Galeo, who's the dean of the School of Public Health at uh, BU, has written a terrific book called The Contagion Next Time. And it's about what he thinks we have to do, uh, which is far bigger than health care reform to make sure that we don't live through another nightmare like this one. It's a terrific book. Lee Pelton is the relatively new head of the Boston Foundation. He just released a report called Multiracial in Greater Boston, Leading Edge of Demographic Change. What the explosion of multiracial families here and in Massachusetts around the country, what the implications are, what it means for our society. So Lee Pelton, Sandro Galea tonight on Greater Boston.
2: Thanks for tuning in again. I am Marjorie Egan.
1: I am Jim Bradley. Really glad you are back. We missed you again. Thanks wonderful time. I missed you too. We're really glad to have you back. Okay,
2: I'm Marjorie Egan.
1: You said that already. I know, but oh, you're I'm, oh, to, you're oh, I'm still to say, Jim Bradley. Oh, I'm that's sorry. That's right. You're supposed to say And oh, then Jim Br- you don't say anything after that. Oh, Is that I'm the way it goes? I'm going to say something after that. Oh, what just, are you going to say?
2: Well, I'm going to say thanks again for tuning in. Okay. Hope you can tune in tomorrow and have a great day.
1: I agree with everything. See you tomorrow. Bye. Bye.